for recording vocals, even if I'm not going to end up wanting to use like a double or a triple vocal sound, to get the take, I will sing to them. So like I'll do one or two takes that I basically are like warm ups. I'll pan them hard. And then then you sing your song. It's like it's that same idea of like the hype man. You've kind of got these voices that are there with you to help you carry that melody. It also it gets you out of your head. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Today's episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is sponsored by Roswell Pro Audio, maker of handcrafted microphones in California. Inspired design and impeccable attention to detail will help you capture a gorgeous vintage sound without the vintage price tag. Check out their beautiful line of microphones at roswellproaudio.com. Hey Rockstars, it's your host Lid Shaw and welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Kyle Andrews, a prolific songwriter and producer with an awesome story of producing pop from his bedroom studio that ultimately reached millions and millions of listens and views worldwide. I first met Kyle when I was engineering a record for the Swedish artist Anders Elfström, produced by Lex Price, a mutual friend here in Nashville. Lex was bringing all sorts of cool musicians into the studio to work for tracking and overdubs. And one day he said he was inviting this whiz kid from his neighborhood into the studio named Kyle Andrews to bring in his laptop and just kind of see what happened on the session. So I set Kyle up in the control room with a couple of inputs to Pro Tools. And then we got rolling on the session. And next thing I knew, he was cranking out some of the wildest and coolest melodies and sounds from a MacBook Pro laptop using nothing but his built-in keyboard and the trackpad, and I think it was the Reason app you were using at that point. Which version of Reason was that? Oh man, it was early. It was probably like Reason three or, three or, four or, something, or something like that. Yeah. What are we on? Like Reason fifty now? Or I th- it's up to ten something. Yeah. Okay, right, I, cool. I've been keeping up to date with it. <laughs> so later, I went to check out more of Kyle's music, and I was blown away at how catchy his songs were and how great the production was. And clearly it was working since his songs have been picked up by shampoo companies, Oscar Mayer, Doritos, Holiday Inn, as well as being loved by fans worldwide. I wanted to say millions of fans. I guess millions of listens, maybe millions of fans. Yeah, I don't know how to quantify that. Why bother? Just lots and lots and lots of (laughs) listens. Kyle's been producing great pop songs from his bedroom using the simplest studio setups writing songs like You Always Make Me Smile with millions of views on YouTube, as well as releasing his own records, Real Blasty, on his own label, Elephant Lady, which includes the hit single Sushi, and more recently, his new EP, Big Hearts Exploding. I am psyched to learn more about writing music that makes thousands of people want to gleefully throw water balloons through the air at each other while still writing music that you love as the artist and doing all this from a simple bedroom home studio. Please welcome Kyle Andrews to Recording Studio Rockstars. Kyle. Hey, Lidge. Thanks for having me. Are you ready to rock, dude? Man, I am. I've had a mocha. You've made me a coffee, and I've got some water. I'm ready to rock. Awesome. Would you say you had a mocha already? Oh, yeah. Did you, do you, <laughs> you make those yourself, or did you go by the, the uh, I go coffee to the, shop? I go to the coffee shop. 
Uh, there's a red bike near me, and it's definitely part of the. That's daily. what it's called, the red bike. Yeah, red bicycle. Nice. It's definitely part of the routine. Um, got the caffeine and then the chocolate in there makes you feel like you're in love. Which awesome. I am with recording. I'm a big fan of mochas. Um, we've got a local coffee shop here called Ugly Mugs that I love going to, and they would have those cards. I think everything's digital now, but yeah. it used to be you. You know, you were a card carrying coffee drinker. And you'd have that in your wallet and stamp it. And every 10 or so, I'd have a free one coming. And of course, I was getting the budget coffees in the mornings. But then when the free, it was time for the free one, I'd go in and be like, Saturday morning, just like, you know, throw down with a four quad shot. What a quad, I can't even say it. Yeah. A quad shot mocha and um, sort of uh, blast my head off. You got to. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, dude, glad to have you here in the studio, man. It's a pleasure uh, to have you here at the Toy Box. I do see there's a fly buzzing around your head, so it may be I may be interviewing you and uh, a fly. But um, Rockstar's apologies for that. It's no worries. Beautiful weather here, and the doors open to the studio a lot of times. So I've kind of read an intro for you, but tell us in your own words, like you know, you you sent me in preparation <laughs> for this 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 amazing breakdown. It was like an outline of your life and recording, and it was such a g- cool story. Um, Share that with us as much as you want to, or just kind of talk about getting started and all this stuff. Sure, yeah. Um, so I live in Nashville now, but I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago and um, just grew up kind of like basically a teenager in the 90s listening to like Q101, which was like... I know Q101. Heyday, alternative rock stuff. Um, so yeah, listening to that stuff, very early got into like, well, hey, I want to get a guitar. I maybe want to write songs. But immediately it was drawn to the idea of recording. So at first it was just like a tape deck that had like a built-in mic. Probably like as soon as I realized that there was such a thing as a four track that you'd be able to like layer, that was just mind blowing. Um, that was immediately the obsession had to have that. So um, so your first move was an actual tape four track at that point too? Yeah, it was a Yamaha like MT50, I think. And I, I saved up money from my paper route at the time. <laughs> nice. I love that. First of all, like we're talking about like <laughs> carrying a card to a coffee shop. Then we're talking about actually listening to FM radio. Then we're talking about recording on tape. Right. And then you're talking about delivering actual physical papers, you know. Times have changed, haven't they? Yeah. You know, <laughs> that puts it in pretty sharp focus there. But um, yeah, it was just so exciting. So like one to just anticipate something be like like man i can't wait till that day that i get this machine that's gonna allow me to layer these tracks i didn't have a plan or an idea what i would even do with that once i got it i just knew something cool would happen with it and sure enough like that day i finally went to the store and and picked it up just layering your voice like singing something in unison playing a guitar part in unison it was just like immediately something special yeah it's like a whole new instrument when you hear whatever you're doing on a mic coming through headphones again right yeah it was just elevated yeah that was the beginning of the love affair of home recording was having this four track layering kind of the other aspect as far as like the evolution of my style of production and songwriting um where i grew up the other kids around me that were interested in music and that potentially would have been bandmates they were all really into like jam band scene fish and that's right that's right you mentioned like that. that in your thing oh, you man. said like you hate fish right oh, i've heard so many <laughs> maybe those are strong words I'm, I'm putting in your mouth no i i feel it i do um like 
that I know the names of any fish songs upsets me. Um, that's that's just my thing. You know, I I grew up. I love the Beatles. I love Smashing Pumpkins. I love pop rock, basically. Yeah, ironically, Fish was known for having this song where they all bounce on trampolines on stage, right? And, and that really like also feels like that would be at the core of one of your moves. If you <laughs> if you like one of your songs, you would get up and like have everybody bouncing on trampolines, right? Yeah, I think there's definitely that aspect of like that fun part of it that I didn't necessarily connect with at the time. That later I'm probably better able to appreciate. So, you know, you're using a four track, um, but it's this is the 90s and ADATs are appearing. I guess ADATs are appearing mid to late 90s, right? The digital stuff. Yeah. So I went four track to um, ADAT wasn't really in my world. I think at some point I got like a standalone mini disc recorder. That was probably like the first digital thing. And then there was like a Roland um, VS880. Yeah, the VS-880 and the VS-1608 yeah. or 88. I had the 880, and I, I love that because it had all the, it basically had like two channels of built-in effects. Um, so that was like the next step of from the four track. You're playing on the four track. It's just, I was literally just plugging my electric guitar directly into it. So this was like a next step into sort of this virtual digital thing. Well, the Roland was really cool. I mean, I, I actually, funny enough, I was up there in Chicago you know, the second half of the 90s, I'm um, working with bands up there too. And uh, and, and we were doing, produced a song that ended up on one of those Q101 uh, compilation oh, series really? too. Yeah. What band and, uh, and like playing shows at the Metro and stuff like that. Oh, really? So I, Chicago is a great scene. I mean, I think it still is. So yeah. It's a fantastic city. Yeah. It. I, so I was just a kid living in the suburbs basically. So um I know that there was all of that happening in the city somewhere, but like, you know, I was kind of cut off from that and I never even spent like time away, like at a camp or something. So like, I was just kind of like this kid in his room. So like whatever was going on in Chicago, that would probably would have been great to dive into. I just wasn't connected to and didn't have um, a direct role model. It, it seemed just another planet, you know? So what was the first kind of stepping out for you where you sort of like, you know, made a big move and moved to Nashville or maybe just moved to the city or whatever? Yeah, so I had, um, ironically, one of the friends that was into those jam bands um, was was clued into the scene going on in Nashville, came down to school at Belmont, ended up joining a band called Llama that was signed to like MCA Records when they were like 16. So that was the first like, oh, this isn't in outer space on another planet. It's people my age that I know. Um, that honestly was enough to be like, okay, well, let me go check out Nashville. So I came down here and immediately loved that it was just like, it's a town that just respects and loves music yeah. and songwriting. Yeah. How, how old were you at that point? I was 19. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, like in the suburbs of Chicago, like a career path would be, I had friends, parents be like, oh, you should get into like computers or networking or something, which maybe would have been a smart idea, but it, music as a profession was, it just, uh, I don't know a nice way to say it, but it just wasn't respected. So to come down to town where it's like, whether you're making money at it or not, everyone you talk to is like doing this and loves it and yeah. respects it. And and it understands that idea of like, well, yeah, it makes sense. You would want to do this. So that gives you a lot of fuel for creativity and just for 
doing it yourself. Yeah, it was so nourishing. And, you know, as you get into the scene, you know, you see other artists you like and they inspire you or you see other bands that you feel competitive with and that inspires you. And it's just a really great time for that. So, yeah. Um, so fast forward almost 20 years <laughs> to the present, right? Yeah. Um, maybe talk a little bit about, because I, I remember when you were doing your intro, what you sent to me, you referenced some things like um, 12th and Porter, you know, these these clubs that don't even exist now. Um, but but people, oh, and now 10 from 10 yeah, is yeah, another 10 one. Out of 10. So, yeah, so 10 out of 10. So these these shows where they're like showcasing local artists and then 10 for 10 out of 10 was was basically a tour that was showcasing Nash, showcasing Nashville artists. Uh, but they don't exist anymore, or at least those things don't exist, but the artists do. Maybe talk a little bit about your experience of like what it means to connect with your peers at that time and then fast forward 20 years and where does that, you know, where's everybody now a little bit? How does that feel to you? Uh, it is interesting. I mean, when you when you kind of start out and you're 19, there's the people you move here with, there's the people you know, and and everybody's very hungry and kind of going for this thing. But uh, what happens is you, you you have to find your niche. You, what, where are you going to have a place in this? You know, when you're young, there's this ideal of like, well, I'm going to be a rock star and tour the world and make lots of money from that. But um, the longer you do it, you see these other pathways within making music, whether it's running a studio or just being a songwriter or just being in someone else's band. There's all these different ways to go about it. Um, so yeah, I mean, well, I mean, do do you ever remember having a feeling that your friends and peers, like, oh, they're all my friends and peers, but that's not real. Like this other big deal stuff I see over on Music Row is what's real. You know, I I think I I quickly was I never had any sort of fantasy of fitting into the Music Row thing. Um, that 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 also felt like the Chicago Q101, just other planet kind of thing. Nashville's always just felt like friends that you're hanging out with and making music with. And um, yeah, sometimes those friends go on and do these huge things or on SNL or something, and that's really cool and exciting. But like, <laughs> it still feels really like a small town thing. Yeah, um, yeah I feel like I got a good takeaway quote from that, which is dig your own planet, right? Right. <laughs> Man, it's true, and I think that's a big part of my story is, um, you know, through home recording, it's allowed me the space to figure out, like, who am I? What What is my voice as an artist? Um, even, like, literally my actual voice, how can I use that on a microphone? Yeah. You know, I know for a fact, like, if I had had to just save up and spend money at an external studio, like, I wouldn't be doing this literally at all because it took me 10 years to learn how to sing the way that I can sing nice um so just having that space figuring out okay what am I good at what can I contribute you know you referenced that session that I came in here and that was probably a big deal for me because I didn't have a lot of experience going into other people's situation like that but you you have to have confidence that okay well here's how I do things here's what I can offer it might not be exactly what everybody else is doing and kind of have faith and put that in the other artist's hands that they can use that or not use that. Yeah. Um, well, you did some really cool things on that session. So, I mean, I don't know if you knew anything about the music going into it, but 
what you your role on that session, what was so unique and interesting to me too, was you got called in in the same way that as if you had brought an electric guitar rig and you were meant to do an overdub, but you showed up with a laptop. <laughs> and I don't even think we were like in sync. We didn't bother with MIDI. There was no so. fancy like yeah. you know, connecting the DAWs. There was no syncing up the the clocks. There was no digital inputs. It was just like, here's a couple of cables. We might have even taken like an output of the headphone jack on your, your laptop possibly. Oh, it's probably you know? off the inbox too. Or off an inbox, <laughs> yeah. And then we just routed a couple of cables in. Yeah. But yet still, you came up with like the coolest sounds and weirdest stuff that made it sound like, you know, we were making this. We It made it feel like the record we were recording was being produced by a bunch of DJs all along in my Pro Tools rig. And I just thought that was a great way to to think outside the box. Another thing I remember is like your sounds, you were coming up with these keyboard sounds, but they came out really like distorted and mangled and fucked up and otherworldly, you know? Yeah, I definitely abused that M-Box. Um, like the real blasty record that I made, I think it was back in 2008. Um, it was just, yeah, it was just digital clipping through the inputs on that. Like all the bass was just plugged directly into it. Or I think I had that 6176, so it was like slammed through that guy, like this tube stuff. and then Oh, that's the Universal Audio tube yeah. interface? So yeah, so I would run the bass through that and then hit that Mbox 2 with it clipping in red, and it would just give you this um, explosion sound. I love it. So you were already <laughs> like just saying, I could care less about what people say you're supposed to do with this, or did you just not have anybody telling you what you're supposed to do with it? So I'm not trained in any way. Like I... Um, yeah, like I didn't go to school for recording. Um, so everything has just been trial and error and experiment. And it does, it, it leaves you free to break the rules or just not even know what they are. And you just use your ears and, and, uh, find something, find something that sounds good. You know, that, that doesn't always work. That doesn't, you know, I could have come yeah. in here and tried that with you guys and it could have been a total dud and maybe on certain songs it was, um, but for me, that's how, I, how I like it, you know, cause yeah. you make plans and they, they change anyway. <laughs> how often had you had a chance to show up on somebody else's record like that and sort of bring your sound and just be like, this is my sound or um, were you, or were you nervous? Oh, I was super nervous before that. Like, and I, I told Lex, I was like, man, like this sounds really cool, but like, I, you shouldn't have me in their day of doing basics. Like it. It might be a distraction because again, it, it could it could fail. Um, I'm used to having all that space and time at my house. Like, there's not a clock running. There's not people kind of looking over your shoulder, going like, "Are you sure about that?" Um, you know, it's probably good because so when you say uh, basics, rock stars, he's, he's talking about like when we were doing the basic tracking. You you were telling Lex you didn't want to be invited in with your laptop as part of the band putting the track down. Right? That's what yeah. you're saying? Oh, yeah. And so I could see, I can already imagine, had that happened, I would have started getting into, well, maybe we should sync up the MIDI between these two things. Sure. And maybe we, we should like export all your loops and we'll build the track off that. And it already would have turned into like, you know, an engineer's geek fest instead of just making cool music. Yeah. And that, that ultimately probably would have been a distraction for all the other players and maybe for the artists. Um, it's definitely worth knowing or trying to keep track of like, okay, when is it a good idea to maybe go down this other rabbit hole? You kind of have to just 
know that there's space and a little patience for that to happen just to see maybe you'll get something really cool um but yeah that's maybe not the same day as like hey we're getting bass and drums and guitar and, yeah um, yeah all that all right so share some more of the stories along your, your path here um you went on to start doing some songs uh real blasty i forgot no there was one before it before real blasty that ended up in the uh shampoo jingle right yeah, so um, so my first record, Amos in Ohio, and then an EP after that were put out on Badman Recording Company, which um, is a label out of Portland, and they've put out a lot of cool indie stuff. Um, again, those are records that are recorded in my bedroom. Um, and this a, is like 2002 or something like that? Uh, a little bit later, like 2005, and then the EP was 2007. Um, so yeah, I'd been in Nashville a little bit and just kind of playing out and meeting people um so yeah i put out that record and eventually yeah one of the songs made its way onto this south american shampoo commercial <laughs> that's great and um at that time i didn't know that that was a thing like that's how green i was i didn't know licensing was a thing so that happening was like oh neat okay but also, um, it was a song called "Find Love, Let Go" that was it was basically a breakup song, and a song about depression, <laughs> and um, how that ended up in this like joyful shampoo commercial. I th it was basically I don't know if you watched it, but it's basically I did, yeah, these it's great. people it's like launching a kite on top of this building. It was really cool, like set to this super sad. I was a little concerned that somebody was going to get blown off the roof of the building. You know, if that guy, if a big <laughs> gust of wind came along and right. 10 people go flying off. Um, um, yeah. So Rockstar is a reminder, of course, I've got links to what we're talking about in the show notes and there's a YouTube video uh, playlist there. So just click through and, and you can go check out any of the songs we're talking about too. Yeah. That's, it's pre HD. So it's like, I think it's like 240, like, pixels or something so it's nice. archived somewhere on the internet but um yeah that was the first experience of like oh okay like these songs you know it's not just record sales these songs could this music could get paired in sort of a another visual situation whether it's an ad or a tv show and then there could be money from that um and it, exposure to people seeing this in this other context yeah so then so then you went off you, you did your first record real blasty which is super cool it's got a, a fantastic single on it called sushi and uh, i think you described that one as really gaining most the most organic traffic and, and listens yeah so that song's never really been used in a huge ad campaign or tv show or anything it just which blows me away like for sure i thought for sure that one was like the featured song in, in all kinds of ads you know, I would, I, I think maybe I thought that too, but um, for whatever reason, I think I think because it is very digital and synthy, um, it kind of limits where it could maybe live. I don't know. Not it, in my mind. Yeah, it, <laughs> you just never know. Honestly, yeah. like all that stuff, it's just it's need driven. So like it's top down. Whoever's making that commercial, they have an idea creatively what they want to use, and so they kind of cast the net out and. So yeah, a lot of times bands or artists are like, oh, I've got the song and it's it would be perfect for this ad or this TV show. I just know it. But that doesn't But that's got nothing to do with right. what this person that's actually creating it yeah. needs as far as a theme or sound or just like all the things that go into it. Um but yeah, that song's it's done well on various streaming things. Um 
Rockstars, you're going to love that track. Um, so now after that one, um, and we're going to get more into like how, how you did all this stuff in the studio a little later, but after that song, then you went on to do, um, you always make me smile and you had a great story about doing that. I wonder if you could, uh, tell us about that. Um, yeah. So you always make me smile. Um, it basically, it happened. I had just kind of split with the management company that I'd been working with for a while. Um, had just put out this real blasty record that for me was like kind of creatively a, a pinnacle of sorts. Um, yeah, I was just like kind of feeling down in the dumps and like depressed, like not, okay, what's the next move? I feel lost. And, um, my roommate at the time, who's now in a band called Cadillac three, he's a drummer. Um, Man, we had been living together so long that I think we were technically common law married. <laughs> um, but like, he's just a really close friend. And uh, we were, man, we were both just kind of bumming. It was raining out, uh, just like that week of Nashville spring storm kind of thing. And he got a prompt from somebody to try to write like the song that, that was supposed to be happy. Again, maybe let's define that word. So when you say he got a prompt, what that's sort of a Nashville experience um, as a songwriter? Yeah. So in publishing, so when you talk about that need base, like somebody that's working on kind of up the food chain, they're working on whether it's an album for some artist or um, some sort of ad project, they're saying, hey, we're looking for this sort of thing or something like this, not a copycat of a song like this, but certain elements, um, whether it's tempo or just spirit, uh, so you'll get prompts of somebody looking for like, well, ideally we'd have a song like "You Two's A Beautiful Day." I mean, that's the all-time prompt is it, for yeah. ads, is yeah. because it's just like it. It sounds like a celebration, yeah. and oh man, isn't it great to be alive today? It's beautiful. Um, so that's that's the kind of thing. And if you um, use this laundry detergent, you'll feel that way too. Yeah. Uh, so they're they're. That's the hope. Um, a lot of times what happens when you write to a prompt is like, well, that's not necessarily inspiring. Maybe you don't feel that way or it's inauthentic. And a lot of times if you try chase things in that way, it's it usually doesn't work. It'll be a dud. Um, this instance, they were like, we got a prompt for a happy song. It was maybe out of desperation, just it's crummy out. We're feeling in the, in the dumps. Um, we just somehow mustered in this like focused three hours, like let's write the happiest thing we can. And in doing that, I, I really was able to draw from basically this other aspect of my personality. I think when I'm hanging with friends, my default, and maybe it's the Chicago guy thing, is I definitely I'm aware and letting you know of all the things I don't like. <laughs> like that's you know, that critical thing is very much in the forefront it felt good to make a song that was like, well, what are all the things I do like about this person or this person or this friend or writing with this person now? And we just, man, we just put it all into this three minute um, explosion of just appreciation, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and we recorded it on a $120 microphone. So like- Do you remember what mic it was? Yeah, it was an Audio-Technica, um 2020 2020 okay yeah so it's like the front of whatever that line is awesome 
Um, and yeah, that was like maybe like the first big success in sense of as soon as we were done with it, we got in my car and we listened to it. We drove somewhere and it was just like, I don't know what, but this will be something like this. This I feel great hearing this. Like it, there was just this, like this definitely will get used in something. I don't know what, like it just will because of the way it sounds. And that was just before it getting picked up in anything and before making money from it, having that confidence of like, okay, this is definitely going to happen. And we just recorded in my bedroom on a $120 microphone. Like it was just a shot in the arm of just like, okay, like let's get back in there. Let's make more, let's make more. So um, I remember it has some great chorus lyrics, right? It's, it's something along the lines of like, I don't know why I love you. I just do or something. Can you tell us the lyrics in that? Uh, yeah, the chorus, I don't know why I love you. Um, I just know I can't stop thinking of you. Oh, wait, it's because you always make me smile. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um, it's so simple, you know? Yeah, and all that stuff just, Neil and I sitting there just quickly just... Um, you guys were like, well, so why do we love her? Why why do you love her in the song? And he's like, I don't know why I love her. Oh, yeah, there it is. That's pretty good. Yeah. And in that, you know, in a lot of songs for me, I'm thinking of so many people. I'm thinking of a girlfriend. I'm thinking of my parents. I'm thinking of my best friend. I'm thinking of, hopefully, of what maybe any of those people might think of me like yeah. i noticed uh, you didn't throw any of your ex-girlfriends in there so <laughs> probably smart um so groovy well so then that song went on to actually get used in in a particular ad campaign right yeah it got picked up uh for this big worldwide um holiday in campaign and they were doing like a big rebranding so it was a big deal like they did a massive ad buy so like i'd be out on tour like staying at a holiday inn and the band would be like flipping stations and we'd see the commercial and they'd turn it on and you know and that they kind of tease you for that yeah. but because it, it's funny it's surreal it's like hey we're in this place and it is it's super weird to be like hey i made that in my bedroom and now it's you know every 10 minutes on tv that's a trip man um, how did that feel i guess you said surreal it was surreal and it was great it was exciting um it's Having never gone to like school to make music, it it was a little bit of a stamp of just sort of like validation in the sense of, okay, like I can make these things inexpensively in my space and somehow reach millions of pairs of ears yeah. and eyes. Because um, it's the idea and the song and what you're bringing to it. Yeah. And there was a, homespun quality to it. it 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 felt authentic like that song i'm not always that guy every minute of the day i'm not that cheery or energetic but it is very much authentic to aspects of me um a couple of quick questions one is just uh for a short you know answer to this you described a real success moment as an artist right there uh, without getting into the details at the same point at which you were describing the success of being in the hotel room, seeing the ads on TV, was it accompanied by what felt like a financial success for you as an financial success for you as an artist at that time? Or is that like, does the financial, well, A, did, was there anything that accompanied it uh, in that respect? Or, and then B, did the financial accompaniment feel like it was like it preceded that moment 
or lagged behind that moment? Just how would you describe that um, experience of going through that to somebody else who's like, oh, I wonder what it would be like? Oh, yeah. I mean, it felt amazing <laughs> like to get paid for your work. Um, it, it, it felt great. It allowed me to pay my friends and my band to go on tour with me. Uh, it allowed me to make more music to just live off of it. Um, and, you know, that stuff's not always the same every time, but that was a big worldwide campaign. And so it, it um, you know, without saying specifics, it was a year's worth of money, at least from, from great. a guy that was living on like, you know, nine grand a year or something. Right. Yeah. Like, that's one of the benefits about being a starving artist is when any sort of windfall comes along, we're like, well, shit, this is great, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it does, when you're working like that, when you're working on spec, it does, there is a disconnect between, hey, I spent this many hours, which is hundreds and hundreds on all this music, and then this one thing landed later and made me this much money, Um there's definitely moments of like you can get confused yeah. in terms of like how you're valuing well that song's is more important because it made more money but it for me I've learned that like all the work that I'm doing leads me to be able to make this song you know I made tons of sad depressing songs before I made this super happy song like yeah. I don't know if I would have gotten there before these things. So, um, well, so I, you know what? I'll inject this question right there since you brought up the sad, sad songs, happy songs. Um, and, and the question is this is D minor really the saddest of all keys? <laughs> and uh, should we stick to major chords? Um, I think I would agree with D minor being super sad. Um, I think. It depends on what your intention is as far as like sticking to major keys. I mean, you're not going to hear that D minor sad slow waltz in the hotel commercial ad that's yeah. going worldwide. You're not going to hear that, but you might hear it in a, a movie that's in you know the Oscars or something. Yeah, you might hear it on your favorite TV show, like a more dramatic thing. So. Yeah, it's kind of what's your intention, what's your goal, where do, where do you want to hear this? Um, and I've had, had success with both. You know, I've had songs that are, I had a song called Don't Feel Left Out that was in, used in a TV show. I think it was called Lie to Me. It was on Fox. And they had, it was like this detective and his daughter, and it, they were having some sort of relationship thing. And she on her laptop was playing my song, Don't Feel Left Out. That's this like kind of sad lullaby thing. And um, that was really cool to have it just like, hey, I'm inside that world. I'm in that fictional place right now. Um, so you, I, I think you can do both. It just has to be honestly one thing or the other. If you go out there and try to fake happy it, it's just not going to work. I don't know, but you you nailed it though on on the day that seemed so unlikely, right? Well, that yeah, that I mean, it required digging and finding. I mean, it was an attitude adjustment of like, okay, like I'm I'm in this like self pity mode. Like, what 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 are the good things in my life? The good people like that I can look to and appreciate right now instead of being this like mopey dude that I've been being. 
Um, man, and the response to that and doing that and fi- digging in and finding that positive energy, I would get emails from people that, I mean, stories that are just like heavy of like, hey, I've been through this thing or our family went through this thing and this is our favorite song, that video is our favorite thing and it's like brought us together and it, man, that's just like, any amount I might have felt like um, sheepish about like, hey, here I'm singing a super, super happy song. Any amount I might have felt like sheepish or uncool about that was just obliterated by like feedback from people that like this is a part of their wedding or uh, something they all sing together as a family. Like, yeah, that's so re- so much more rewarding than like whatever cool or uncool factor of like singing a happy song. Tell us about the video that you guys did to go with that song. Um, so the agency, and this was, it was pretty cool. Like they were trying to basically give me a little bit of help as an artist. Um, they put together kind of a small budget to produce a video. And um, they had a connection to um, the ad lab at BYU out in Utah. And so I got on the phone with all those guys. There were students that are basically aspiring to be ad makers and directors and producers. And they had this idea of putting together, they were going to do like the world's largest water balloon fight with all the kids on their campus. They pitched maybe like three ideas, but it was just like, oh, definitely the water balloon thing. Yeah. <laughs> like that is just immediately it was like, that will be fun. Um, it dawned on me as I got there, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to be standing in the middle of like 5,000 students that, and trying to sing my song, like they're going to be gunning for me. <laughs> yeah, totally. So like I had like an earpiece in and was trying to sing along, but like, man, three screaming, three seconds in, it was just melee and just like pummeled with like water balloons. And I mean, it felt similar to like paintball when you get shot with one of those where it's just like, oh, okay, like. That that stings. That hurts a little bit. <laughs> um, but man, it was it was like one in a lifetime sort of experience of just like again like I never went to college, so then here I am with like all these college kids doing this crazy fun thing that college kids do. But then it's also my music video, and it's um, breaking some sort of record. And was the video part of the ad campaign too, or was the ad different? It, it and was, music was it, yeah, it was company. separate. It wasn't a Holiday Inn thing. I think the idea was like, hey, if they help me out, people will just hear that song separately, and maybe there's some sort of um, subconscious connection between the two. I don't know how, how well that actually worked or not, but... Um, well, the video's got like, you know, over 2 million views, I think, when I looked at it, so. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was an exciting time. Um, it was kind of a sweet spot for like YouTube where you could independently put up something and um, that wasn't like a cat video and still get like millions of views. You haven't done a cat video yet? I haven't. Um, I think Matt Mahaffey did a cat yeah, video. Yeah, I was going to say his was really great. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was- <laughs> Rockstars, uh, go back and listen. I don't remember what the episode number was off the top of my head, but uh, I did an interview with Matt Mahaffey, too, who's doing some... Uh, I, I was thinking... I wondered if you guys knew each other, and I was thinking if you didn't, I needed to we do. We, we hung out once and, tr- and wrote together, and I went out to his studio, which was um, inspiration for me, ultimately, building the studio that I built. Because, um, yeah, it was just 
Toyland over there. Yeah. It's a, it's a yeah, dig it, man. All right, uh, so let, let me ask you this question. Let's stick to something you said about feeling sheepish about the song and the lyrics and stuff. You started out, um, you talked about finding your voice over years, you know. So clearly you went through uh, the the desire to record music and do stuff and everything. But somehow you also let people hear it. You shared it with people in, in your, you know, what you sent me. You talked about handing CDs and demos to people and, and um, you know, getting into the first showcase and stuff like that. Talk a little bit about that process. Tell us about that, like, you know, stepping out and taking a chance and like, you know, feeling awkward and, and handing your CD to try and get on the stage at, at 12th and Porter. Oh man. I mean, it, that stuff is kind of everything. It's literally just putting yourself out there. Um, I'm pretty shy person. And so that's not naturally something that, that I have a skill for. Um, so yeah, it was a big deal to kind of go out to this showcase and go up to Daniel Tash and be like, here's this CD-ROM that I burned. Like, and, you know, when you're new to it, you're looking for somebody to be like, here's a stamp on you. Yeah, I think you're great. And like to just drag you into it. But like everyone's trying to do it. So people aren't trying to drag you into doing it. You have to like put yourself there. Yeah, I remember feeling that way about Nashville, realizing one day I was like, you know, the thing about Nashville is like, you make a CD and you meet someone, you hand me like, hey, I just finished this CD. This is my great work. And they're like, oh, cool. Yeah, I just finished this CD and this is my great work. <laughs> right. You I know? mean, that's a, uh, that's a real thing. And I remember when I first moved here, I started working at a, a grocery store. And that's actually where I met Lex Price. Um, what was it? The Sun- Sunshine Grocery or so? What was it called? Yeah, so it was like an extension of that. It was what became Wild Oats. Right. Yeah, okay, Green right. Hills. And the cool thing about that was there was hundreds of people that worked there and hundreds and hundreds of people that came through every day. So like um, for someone like me that's a shy person, I'm just now by default interacting with hundreds of people that I didn't know. Nashville at the time was definitely like a small town, but like it was a way to just kind of get a sense of what was what. You could invite all those people to your show and they'd come and... You'd go to their shows and there's just like this community of like people all interested in it as well. But I mean, literally working at that store, um, it led to meeting really cool other musicians like Lex Price, um, a friend, let's see, like the husband of a girl that worked in one of the departments was on a band that was working with Network with Chris Moon and eventually me from me just passing these CDs around everybody somehow ended up in his hands. Um, you know, and it's on one hand you want to be like, well, it's not that as simple as that, but it almost kind of is. It's like you just you have to pass it to somebody that you trust and you like their style and their taste, and hopefully they like yours and they pass it along and they pass it along. But man, like if if you're hiding in your room and not sharing that stuff, like nobody knows like what you're doing, and they're not gonna just like dive in and find you. Let's let's tell the Chris Moon story for just a second. So Chris Moon is this great uh, guy that I met many years ago too, and he actually showed up to introduce me to an, an artist that he was working with that he was excited about, named Josh Rouse. Oh yeah, and that was at a time where I first heard it, and I was like. 
<laughs> so my story is sort of funny. It's it's a me missing the boat story. Right. Where I was like, I was like, oh yeah, this is this is cool. I guess you know what are, what is this? Who is this guy? You know, I'm I'm like I was feeling a little self important. You know, that was sort of my like sideline story going on in the back of my head. And then next thing you know, I I hear what those guys are doing, and I think they did it with Roger Mutino, and I was like, mm. oh my god, this is really cool stuff. Yeah. You know, um, and I always think those stories are funny too because it's it's really easy to you know, overlook stuff that is, you know, really meaningful music. It's just right in your peripheries you know, sometimes when you're going through this p- journey, you know. I think that happens to everybody. I I was back home recently and uh, my parents had pulled out kind of just like some stuff of mine that they had in storage. And there was, I think it ultimately became the scene, but it used to be called All the Rage. It was just like a smaller weekly and on the cover, they had kind of done like a spoof of like the Sgt. Pepper's thing, but they had like local bands. And I was in there in the mix um, around the time of like my first or second release. And then it was like Pink Spiders in the center. And then like somewhere in the back was Paramore. And I like flipped through it and like they had like kind of ranked everybody. And it's just like, man, talk about missing the boat. Like they had me a lot higher than Paramore. And it's like, well, we've seen how that's worked out for everybody. <laughs> so it's interesting, like, at the time, what seems like, yeah, you could easily just not see what somebody else is seeing. Um, I would just, say at that time, too, Paramore was probably really doing uh, a music that would have fit right into, you know, the vibe of Chicago and stuff where right. we came from, you know, the yeah. Q101 thing. Yeah. Um, well, cool, man. All right, well, let's take a break for a minute. We'll come back in for the jam session. I'm digging into more questions. But actually, before we do... I like to ask um, guests to share an inspirational quote. And I wonder if there's anything that you wanted to share, just kind of get us um, psyched up to hit the studio. Yeah, definitely. Um, so inspirational quote, I was, I toured with this guy, Kishibashi, when he was in a band called Jupiter One. And when he, I got to hear all of his first solo record before it came out. I remember just being really mystified at how amazing it was and texting him and asking like, how did you make this? Which is a pretty broad question. But he gave back this very Zen answer. It was, first you must do it, and then it is done. Nice. And man, I just remember just being like, ooh, okay. Like, but it's so true. It's back to that idea of like, you just, you just have to make it. It's not going to be perfect. It'll never be perfect. You try your hardest, and you love it, and you make it, and you got to put it out there and learn what you can learn, and then do it again. So I like that. I'm going to take that advice myself and try and remember it. I found it, it's worked uh, for a lot of things, you know, you just just try it. Like even the stuff you're scared of, just just do it. And, well, you know, and, and you talked about making those first steps towards, you know, leaving your sheepish home studio with the music you're creating and sharing it with somebody you trust. Um, did you also feel like you were surrounded by people that you were terrified to share your music with? Like, oh, they're going to laugh at me kind of thing? I will say, and I'm super grateful for it in coming to Nashville. Um, and maybe because I was doing something coming from somewhere else, people from somewhere else tend to be kind of exciting for some reason. Um, but I wasn't doing exactly what everybody else was doing. And man, I'm really grateful. I, I found a lot of friends here that I did. I liked what they were doing and trusted and they were giving me a lot of positive feedback. So that, I mean, that definitely, it gives you courage to be like, okay, well, I'll take another step out the door and another step out of, out the door. 
Nice, dude. Yeah. Awesome. Well, rock stars, we're going to take a break. Uh, remember, you can find everything we're talking about in the show notes. Just go on your mobile device right now with the podcast app, and you can click through, including a, a YouTube playlist, so you can go listen to some of Kyle's awesome tunes. And then if you're actually in a place right now where you want to learn more about basic mixing stuff, go take my free course, MixMasterBundle.com, where you I give you downloadable multi-tracks, and I show you how to mix a song in Pro Tools, but this would work in any DAW, no matter what you're mixing on, using all free and stock plugins. And um, enjoy that. And we'll see you guys in just a minute for the jam session. Roswell Pro Audio brings you microphone design that is out of this world. Endorsed by a growing list of artists and producers like Phil Collin of Def Leppard, Ross Hogarth, who's recorded Van Halen, Ziggy Marley, and the Doobie Brothers, and Super Dupes, working with Drake, Mary J. Blige, and Eminem. These are all rock stars that have discovered just how great Roswell microphones sound. Check out the Mini K47, which uses a capsule modeled on the one in the vintage U47 at a street price of only $299, or the beautiful Delphos condenser microphone with a capsule tuned like the vintage U67 with great clarity and far lower noise at a street price of only $899. In fact, you are hearing my voice right now on the beautiful Delphos microphone. These mics are carefully crafted by hand and immediately feel good even before you plug them in and hear how great they sound. These are well-built microphones that will last you and your studio a lifetime of great recording. Check out more audio examples of these awesome mics at roswellproaudio.com. Hey, rock stars. We're back now for the jam session. My guest today is Kyle Andrews, joining us to talk about making all kinds of great pop songs, um, many of which have been picked up by pretty successful jingles and ad campaigns, and then all the while making records that you actually really enjoy making yourself. So are you ready to jam? Kyle? Yeah, let's jam. All right, dude. All right, so let me start out with this question. What makes a great pop song? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, to me, a great pop song, there's, there's different layers. It's something you could not be paying attention to the meaning of it whatsoever, and it's tuneful and catchy, and, and it's produced in a way that you're just drawn to on the superficial level. Um, but beyond that, to be great, um, there's usually a few layers of meaning for me. Um, man, I wish I... Well, so it's, you know, I've heard a lot of descriptions about this, this creative process yeah. and interpretations. And I always like the ones that, you know, where, where the author of the song doesn't ever really want to answer the question about what the song's about. Right. You know, because it's an understanding <laughs> that the meaning is in the interpretation and sure. the listen a lot of times. I, I mean, when I'm writing, I, I try to sort of triangulate between a few different thoughts. Okay, like I'll be drawing from a f few different places. Like it could, for directly for me in my life, it could be about this moment or this experience or this relationship over here with someone else. And then that last sort of corner of it is what the audience could do with it for themselves. And yeah, there's a certain amount of you, you want to put yourself into it, but you also want there to be room and space for the listener to wear that and put themselves into it. Yeah. Well, um, what, what are some of the things when you have been learning how to do what you do that you feel like we're just stupid? We're like when you 
put these words together or when you try and play this instrument or when you try and make a mix sound a certain way, where did, along that path, did you feel like, man, I really suck at this. This is so embarrassing. (laughs) Um, Like, like where is your internal critic the loudest? I mean, for me, it just depends on my mood. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of bipolar. So like, yeah, one part of the day, if energy is low, like I'll, I'll definitely will pick apart mixes or my voice and just feel like, oh, what's what's the point in this? Like, but why I, should I even continue? But I know, um, and I, just from doing it so much, it, I do have confidence. Like, well, I, I should probably shouldn't listen to that version of myself, like, because the only time this is gonna work is if. The other version of myself is like, man, I love this. I'm so excited about it. It's usually the next day guy. Like you listen yeah, in the morning, the you're like, all right, guy. like you've rested and it sounds good again, and you don't feel crazy for chasing this idea. Um, you gotta listen to that that voice. The other one, I'll just you'll never finish anything because there's, I mean, there's always something to, to critique or hate about yourself. <laughs> like, yeah, that's that's endless. Um, well, what was our quote? Just do it, and then it's and then it's done, or something like that. Yeah, and so like the Zen quality of that of just, and this is something I do try to create in the studio space. You're trying to lose that self consciousness. You're trying to shake that critic. Um, and honestly, even if the point, if you're in the headspace of trying to cheerlead yourself, also like that's a distraction as well. It. You got to get to that headspace where I can just try something and not even consider whether it will work or not. That's That'll be apparent pretty quickly. What are some good tricks for um, shaking the critic and getting in the headspace where maybe you're moving forward and doing before your internal critic even has a chance to like get its thoughts together and start beating you up? Uh, first thing, I mean, definitely like the mocha is part of it. Like there's this chemical (laughs) thing of just, okay, there's a stimulant there. And then that chocolate does something to your brain that gets you that like kind of lovey dovey feeling of just like, Hey man, anything is possible here. Um, that helps, um, beyond sort of that chemical thing. Um, yeah, avoiding habits or situations where you know you're going to get self-conscious. So, do you turn your phone off when you're working? Uh I do as much as I can, but I also use the phone for writing lyrics if I'm writing with somebody else and so yeah, you can get distracted and sucked into other stuff. I try to ignore the rest of Nashville songwriting world. Like if you yeah, get I guess it, you can put your phone on uh, airplane mode. Yeah, that's right? I think that's the thing to do make the space to just not have other voices in your head. That's a big thing. I don't co-write with a lot of people, but the people I do, it's somebody that I, I trust and I feel can get to that vulnerable space with where there isn't really judgment. Um, you just have to create that, you know, and big pet peeve is like, if you're in the middle working or trying to write, like somebody else coming in from somewhere or someone within that talking about something that's got nothing to do with your song, like, those are spell breakers. You got to stay in that. Spell breakers. Yeah, like yeah. you got to stay in that thing and believe in it, even if it's a silly idea. Because like the second, another pet peeve, <laughs> here I go. 
I do it too, but like you'll be working on a mix and you hear the um, sound of like silly words for the song and you start singing the gibberish or like the joke version of it. Right. That's a spell breaker too. Yeah. I'm definitely guilty of it. I'm super guilty of it. I try try to be careful of that too. Because if you're if you're just producing somebody, it's like you want them to get somewhere emotionally and just really give you something that they totally believe in. Even though it's not meant in like a negative way, the second you start doing that, it does make a joke of it. And it oftentimes is funny, but like we've now shifted. We're making jokes instead of like believing in something. Now, would you also say though that it's the jokes are okay in the studio as far as like mood lighteners and keeping everybody having fun, but it's that distasteful wrong direction of don't make the joke about the lyric yeah, because don't, I don't mess with the like song or, yeah. or their ability. You know, it, that's also a read the room kind of thing. If that's the dynamic that a, a band has and maybe you play into that and that de- develops this other rapport that yeah. you can then go to these other places and, and get vulnerable with. But uh, yeah, I've noticed that. Like, if if I do it to myself, if I kind of break that spell and and kind of make light of it, it's that much harder to just like chase that idea to somewhere yeah. great. Um, totally. I, I I find myself doing a jam session with a friend, and if I begin to lose myself, I'll start singing something, and then the word coming out might be the most generic thing, like you know, like "Are you lonely too? I'm lonely" or something like that. Right. That's a kind of a vulnerable lyric to say out loud. But if I immediately crack a like a joke about it, like uh, that you know some goof thing, it's gone. Whatever it was that I was pursuing is gone. You know. Yeah, and I think, man, that is such a common thing to one think that that like sort of reflexive first idea is somehow innately bad because you didn't construct it and control it and be like, okay, like I am lyricist guy and I'm writing this and crafting it. I re- your conscious mind, you want to be that, like, oh, I plan this, I have control, like, I can make... I'm such a badass. Yeah, like, I can make <laughs> amazingness at any time because I've got control over it. I'm wielding that power. For me, I, I don't... I realize I don't have that at all. Um, and 99% of the time, like, the thing that just comes out is truth. If you got to a place where you're not conscious and you got that safe space it just comes out and that's truth and and maybe you adjust it or finesse it in a way that you like even more but you got to follow those those tangents even if it is it seems simple or something someone else has said before and I, i try to just ignore that stuff and chase it that'll lead you to something that's real to you, at the okay. very least. Okay, so that prompts me to want to ask this question that I'd written down. So if you see my eyes wandering while we're Go chatting, it. it's me looking for the, my giant list of questions here. But um, it reminds me to ask you this. I feel like sometimes that in the moment, that first idea that comes out is oftentimes you know, the core of an idea. It's the kernel of what a song could be. And it might be a hook or a chorus lyric or something like that. Um, so the question is basically is like, do you find it harder to write the chorus or write the verse? And I guess the translation is like that first idea that comes out is the uh, subconscious writing. 
But then do we have to like put on our control, let the control guy take the wheel and start writing the rest of the song and the verses and stuff? Maybe you can talk about that um, juxtaposition. Yeah, so I, it definitely helps, you know, that, that first thing that just kind of comes out or like, what are you feeling most in that moment? Um, if that ends up just being your theme, if you kind of commit to that, then maybe it is easier to construct around it. Um, I, I had a, like a really rewarding writing session um, with Daniel Ellsworth and his friend that I just met, this guy, Avi. And we just, it was like kind of this cosmic thing where it was like, hey, we're just sitting here talking about a mood we would want to set and basically kind of describing a scene of it. And then just, so there's a certain amount of like, hey, we know we want to get to this place. We know we want to capture this feeling. I don't necessarily know how. And just very like free association, just grabbing at lines. Like, is this it? Does this feel like it? And just going until we were left with, okay, there's this blank spot for what is this last line that probably would be like the name of the song. So like we got, you know, music, all these lyrics, verse, all this stuff, even the top of the chorus, all of that embodied and was the feeling of what we we're going for. But then it, it did become a, let's solve a problem of um, this needs a little bow on the end that kind of completes it. So maybe the craft work does come into play at that point, but all that was built on and led to by letting it be free and not just trying to nail it down right away throwing out ideas that weren't the thing and realizing that and just being patient with it. Um, what tips do you have for when you're co-writing with somebody and they throw out an idea and you're not feeling it? How, what's, what's the, um, what do you find as a useful way to keep moving forward and not be like, shoot that one down. And now everybody's like, Oh, Man, I getting shot down. I'm finding more and more. Um, I was very bad at that very thing because I spent so much time alone in my bedroom or a basement recording and only, you know, that, that process of yes or no would just happen instantaneously within me. It took me a long time to learn how to express that in a constructive way with other people in a session. Um, I feel like I have gotten better. And the thing is, it's just straight up honesty. Like it's okay if that idea that I'm throwing out to you, if you don't respond to it, if it doesn't ring your bell, that's okay. Like my life's not over and yours isn't. And once I kind of accepted that for myself, like it's easier to then give that feedback to somebody else. And you feel like the yeses are more important than the noes anyway? Um, well, it, it, Like Maybe it's not even a yes or no. It's like, okay, well, the way you're saying that, what do you mean by that? Because I don't understand. It's not hitting me like the way that maybe you're hoping. So it's just like, um, give me more explanation. And maybe we, we together find the way to say that that feeling or what you're trying to describe in a way that we both connect yeah, to. Yeah. So it's, even like, it's, 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 it's not even a no. It's just like, well, maybe, but maybe there's a way to say that, that, makes even more sense. Um, have you found that there are times when you're co-writing with people where 
you think you would have said something this way, and because you had that other person saying, "I don't, I, I don't understand what you mean by that," that it, that they drew something out of you that was much better, you know, in the end. You, do you feel like you've had those experiences? Yeah, definitely. I mean, even you always make me smile writing that with my roommate. Um, who is, he's a very focused writer and is kind of eye on the ball. So like, I need to give him something that makes sense. I can't, um, it's more the Tom Petty sort of direct, like the way you would speak to somebody, Mm -hmm. which I really love. If I'm by myself, I might go off into this nebulous poetry thing that I know what that means, but, um, like Tom York or something? Yeah, <laughs> where it maybe would, would give people a feeling, but it's a roll of the dice. Whereas like if you're writing with somebody that like has kind of a different channel or you need it to make sense to them, you definitely write in a different way that's maybe more direct. And, you know, more often than not, that stuff is easier for people to connect to. Yeah, interesting. It's like a communication of lyric that has to actually land has to like stick a landing right next to you because there's that person versus writing and recording your own stuff where it's a communication of whatever it is. And then you can kind of lean on that idea I was saying before, where once it's out of your hands, it's like, you don't have to explain it anymore. It's in the interpretation. Right. And both are valid, but um, but they do produce different things. Yeah, it's definitely a, di- it's a different thing. And what are you trying to accomplish with it? And um, there's times where I like, I kind of went through a, a period of a few years where, man, I just was not interested in, in being exposed on the level of like, hey, here I'm some guy singing what I feel to people in a way that they can easily absorb. Um, maybe I just wasn't a fan of what was going on there. But like, so in those moments, you you write in ways that are obscured or, or blurred in a way that is still a, an expression of what you're going through, but it's it's not such a confession and then there's other times where i do i like to just say exactly what's happening yeah i find when i have a clear idea of what it is i'm trying to say and then i just say it sometimes the words can flow out pretty easily that way doesn't mean that it's the best lyric in the end um i have a couple of problems with my lyric writing and or at least what i think are problems maybe they're not maybe i'm just beating myself up and i should shut up but let me share them with you and and see what you um want to say about those one is I have a tendency to hear a lot of rhythm. So I want a lot of syllables to all land in perfect time mm-hmm. in all kinds of spots and spaces, you know? And then another is I'm really stuck on the rhyme schemes. It's like, you know, A, B, A, B, A, B. And I wonder if you can talk about your experience with that kind of, you know, fitting the lyrics into the, the music and whether you like it, don't like it, how do you deal with it? Um, so usually one or two things happens. You always make me smile. It was like, oh, magically the thing I'm trying to say just it's just all there and it it pieces together and those words are just falling into this melody like they just came together. That's just like, okay, great. Uh, hardest thing is, hey, I've got a melody or an idea of how the melody would go, but I don't have the words yet. And that's when you're that's where you get into the syllable thing and you're trying to match up that rhythm and it. Or you already had one great line. Now this other line's got to be as great as that line. That can be kind of a that can be a grind. That gets in the work, and 
I mean, sometimes there you try and you try and you try and sometimes you just have to sort of like let go of that construct that you've made yourself that like, oh, this has to match. Like the first half of this verse, melody and rhythm has to be the same as the next bit. Like um, literally there, you don't have to do that. Like I don't, we've all gotten that idea and I, I, there is like a Nashville kind of writing thing the thing i get people will be like oh we already used that word earlier i'm like yeah the song is about that that's why we're saying it over and over like <laughs> yeah. like that stuff i do i have you know because i didn't go to school and so i get this like sort of classist chip on my shoulder of like this isn't american idol this isn't uh, a class for songwriting like just tell me what you're feeling and thinking like i don't care if it rhymes it's great when it does <laughs> like that that's like a miracle but i don't like having those self-imposed roadblocks maybe you try to get there if that's your goal but like if it's just not happening i'd rather have like the concepts expressed and the feeling expressed and have those things not i like that matched. advice i'm going to take that and run with it for Do sure it. it's easier <laughs> yeah just like write down if i'm writing a song and i've got some ideas just write down some of the ideas and thoughts I have and don't even get stuck on how to fit them yet. Just start doing it. I've also found that sometimes if I just take an acoustic and I like pace around the studio, I'm lucky to have enough space here where I could like literally walk from room to room, yeah. just playing and banging out. And boy, um, I'm a whole lot better if there's nobody else around that might, God forbid, hear me singing out loud, you know, yeah. but if I can just bust it out, just the just actually like making my voice get loud and sing something causes stuff to happen that I couldn't have predicted. Yep. But I also better be recording it on my iPhone at the same time or else I'll, I won't know what I just did necessarily. Yeah. 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 There's that thing of just, if you get too self-conscious about it all, it will be, it'll just become a block. That's the other thing I had to learn with writing with other people is say the bad ideas out loud like my brain internally would be like, nope, not that, nope, not that. And the other person just watched me sit there silently for two minutes and they got nothing to work with. Whereas if I, maybe I said the bad idea that I've already rejected, maybe the other person can go, well, not that, but maybe something like this and give it a twist. Yeah, it's like a little microcosm for the whole music career experience, isn't it? It's like you got to put your music out to even have it evolve. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's that fear. There is the fear of like, oh man, somebody's going to laugh at me or maybe they thought it was good and now they're seeing me play and it's not as good. Man, like that, that stuff is just um, part of the process of creating is, is finding the good stuff amongst everything. I think that answered the question I was going to ask, which is how many bad songs have you written? Um, oof. I don't know. I don't know how many bad songs that I genuinely think are bad that I've actually finished. I'm sure that I've started a thousand. Yeah, nice. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, um, we were talking about you always make me smile. You talked about doing that with a hundred and twenty dollar mic in a bedroom. Um, but I also know that you, you know, it's a combination of using a mic to record some things, but you also know how to use the computer. And I wonder. Let's get into your studio process a little bit, like. What part of that song, for example, is done with a mic and what part is sort of created from sounds within a computer? Uh, you always make me smile. Um, the heart of that, it was written on acoustic guitar. So the heart of that was recording 
several acoustic guitars and just kind of panning them out wide. And um, I would have then plugged electric guitar straight in to the preamp and used like an amp simulator on it. And same with the bass. Um, so in that sense, like I started out very much as like an in the box kind of guy. But of course you're starting with a click track coming out of the box. So you're following. Yeah. Click track knowing that like, okay, like I'm going to build this up. So that, I mean, that, that's an evolution of being alone in my room, working on that four track and just layering and layering. Um, Have you tried to build up songs without a click track and found that to not work for you? um, I found it. I guess, I guess at the root of that question is why click track? Just knowing that it's going to afford me, I can do tricks with it, basically. And this is interesting because I recently, in building out a studio, did my first project with a live band. And their drummer is phenomenal, but he absolutely 100% refused to play to a click track. So my progression is like, yeah, playing to a drum machine, programming that, or playing to a click, and then building around that, knowing as I'm writing, I can arrange, I can move sections. Um, you know, I read stories about people like PJ Harvey or Cat Power where they just track guitar and sing first and then they go back later and build a band around it. Um, I mean, to do that, you have to have musicians that can just play to somebody's free-floating rhythm track. Um, yeah, that can be really tricky to do. It's it's a challenge. Like, I, I've seen people do it successfully, and I'm just not that. Like, I'm a build-it-up-the-other-way guy. Um, and that's just, you know, I didn't start as a live performance background. I started with doing it this method. So, yeah, you always make, make me smile. I would have been do that and then program drums into it, layer in. You know, sometimes it's MIDI, like triggering MIDI stuff, or sometimes it's literally just drag and click and drag a sample into the place where I know I want it to be. Or Oh, like a snare sample. You just like place it on the grid and those snare hits. And yeah. Um, a lot of my early records was doing that or programming Beats and Reason and then having my roommate Neil, like one microphone over his drum kit, just bash out over it. And I would just, we would do like one take. And from that, I would splice and dice and just make it all into a thing that I thought was interesting. Nice. Yeah, I think the first drum programming I did was was similar. We might have used MIDI to create some, you know, sounds coming out of a drum machine or a computer at first, but ultimately, like they were just a bunch of individual samples yeah. that I was laying on the grid. And boy, is that painstaking too. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a the thing, uh, you know, MIDI. Depending on your system, there will be a latency. And it'll float, and just depending how in that moment your, your computer's feeling, there will be just this ebb and flow, and you'll notice, like, I only know what this is later, but, like, you'll notice phase stuff, like, maybe at the beginning of your session, everything sounded, like, really banging, and by the end, you layered in stuff, and it, for some reason, just doesn't stay, stay the same. Yeah. Um, so just pulling an audio, or I'll print off of MIDI the audio, and it'll just stay locked on that sample in place. Yeah, it sort of brings up an interesting discussion because um, I've definitely experienced that where you try to sync things up and then they fall out of sync and you were hoping for sounds that layered up perfectly and then things get out of, out of phase, kick drums and low ends and it doesn't sound tight anymore. Um, and then I've also done what you talked about where you record something in and then you're like, okay, this is the one bar of our loop 
And um, this would catch me off guard. You know, you'd hit the duplicate button in Pro Tools and you'd duplicate it out a million times to, to do the whole song. Because, you know, if you're in Logic, you've got the little loop thing. You can just right. kind of zip it across to the end. Um, but it, from Pro Tools, you had to duplicate it. And then Pro Tools would lose its way, you know, eight to 12 bars in, and it would be off by a couple of samples. And that would screw you. So you had to like really, you know. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, in the DAW, there's so many things that, and so much freedom, but there's not really such thing as like completely automatic like that. Right. And when you try to lean on it, there's always just this like, well, it's, I know it's this, it's this, why isn't it working? And then you look at it and you're just like, oh, when I duplicated it, like it was, I didn't grab the whole thing or whatever. Yeah. Um, but it is that lesson of like, you know, all the automation tools are great, but rock stars get ready to have to go in and, and you know, handhold them and baby them to get them to really work the way you, you thought they were supposed to work. And I guess that's just a normal part of the process, you know. I've jumped around, like used, and I still do, like Logic, Pro Tools, Ableton Live, Reason. Um, I still actively use all of those. The thing that I love all the sounds and stuff that were in Logic, but the automated stuff, like the garage bandy, like, hey, did you mean to do this kind of like Mac stuff? It threw me off. Like, I'd find myself like it, it was just trying to guess, like, oh, you meant to loop this out like 100 bars when I didn't. Um, I kind of went back to Pro Tools where it's just like maybe a little more tape machine in the sense of like, it's not going to guess for you and right. just like do random like stuff. Like you have to do like what you, you want to have. You have to, yeah, you have yeah. to act on it. Yeah, I find that can be, there, there are a lot of things that I need to do that are very specific. And that's one of the things I like about Pro Tools is it's easy to get in there and know that what you're doing is specific and you can see it and you can count on it hopefully still being there later, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, talk about Ableton Live though. I think that's a great, uh, I love it. What are some of the things that the rock stars should know about it if they haven't used it yet? Like how is it a great tool for your process? Um, so, I mean, Ableton started out as more of a live DJ thing. So there's kind of like two views and screens that you can use on it. Um, I honestly never really used it in that way of the like, triggering loops and all that i know i haven't messed with that i just do in the like linear timeline what i like about it is you know just on the left side of your screen you've got just all your stuff you would use sounds instruments plugins it's just there to click and drag onto a track so i, I love that and then underneath there's windows to also just effect or trigger whether it's like pitch shifting stuff or tempo stuff it's just kind of all in a one spot. You can do similar things like that in Pro Tools, but you have to like go somewhere and make it happen. Yeah. So I do, for just jamming on an idea, especially if it's like a synth thing in Ableton, I can just very quickly be like, oh, I started in this tempo and in this key and tried this sound. I can print that sound and be like, what does it sound like if I speed it up? You literally just hit the tempo up a few clicks and it's just instantly happening and all the audio is happening with it. So you can try all those things really quickly. Yeah. Um, all that stuff's super fun. I did a an electro record with Daniel Ellsworth called um, Chaos Emeralds and it was all started in there. And it's just, 
us playing synths and then printing the audio and then me messing with it in Ableton and doing pitch dives and just pitching it up and just getting like these weird artifacts and just it's a different I mean that and like reason it feels like you're playing a video game more than uh doing a proper recording and that just gets you in this like free headspace of like anything goes what if we tried this yeah Um, yeah i find ableton was great for freaking sounds out so i would take my laptop with a version on it and i remember like waiting for my tires to be changed yeah (laughs) and i just went like you i just made like sounds into the the laptop mic and very quickly that was able to turn that into like a soundscape and a song and some weird stuff you know yeah that's so much fun i mean those those experiments are just just do it. it. It gets you into that free space where you're just finger painting and maybe you learn something or it becomes something useful or you export it out into a Pro Tools session. Have you tried uh, Studio One yet? Have you messed with that at all? You know what? I've heard lots of really good things and I think I downloaded it, but I just, I I think I capped out at like knowing four. <laughs> yeah. I just... Each one takes time and energy to to learn it, really. Yeah, and you, your brain gets split between like key commands, and I found at some point I was like, okay, I, I, I'm trying to do too much and too many. So now I'm pretty much in live Pro Tools, and then I'll rewire reason to either of those. Yeah, I kind of wish that there was some organization like you know the MIDI organization or AES that had just sort of set out guidelines for what all key commands should be for all apps. <laughs> That'd be great. And you, I'm sure there's there's probably some way to like hot rod it and sync that up, but I, I just, I don't go to that level. Yeah, so. I never really liked doing that because I always felt like, well, I don't want to learn it my own custom way so that when I go to somebody else's studio, I can't use it there. I always want to just learn the, the default way so that I could be on anybody's computer and, and do it. That's smart. Um, all right, so let's talk a little bit more about the drum programming stuff for you. I mean, you talked about dragging stuff in. One of the challenges for me if I go into programming drums is I might hear something rhythmically, but as soon as I try and play it, you know, using the MIDI drum machine and record it and then play it back or quantize it, it just, it's like, it's not even just a little bit gone. It's like some other drum beat from another planet that doesn't make any sense. And it just killed my entire like creative spirit for that song because now I don't remember what I was trying to do kind of thing. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Have I mean, you found some good methods <laughs> for like that? Definitely happens. Um, I've seen people successfully not quantize. Um, if you want like a human feel that's going to be like mo- closest to just an actual person playing, and that's got like any feel like sometimes you play it in and then you've kind of you grab a piece of it and massage until it actually sounds like what you were hearing in your head it's rare again with that automation thing it's rare that some sort of automatic quantize or tuning thing it's rare that those things are like ta-da like that's perfect now like because it's just guessing and it, it, it can't read your mind yet so. yeah um, yeah, I, I found with that stuff, like I'll play it or I'll place it best to where I think it is. And it's taught me a lot about like timing and rhythm of where, where certain feels are. Um, but yeah, yeah. you begin to know all these numbers that you never thought <laughs> you'd know before. I remember, you know, like 600 clicks in Pro Tools was like this magic 
number for just the right kind of rock swing after really? working on it for ages, you know. I'll use that. I'm probably it's probably <laughs> wrong now, but um and it reminded me to finish my earlier thought, which was, you know, we were talking about the automation and things don't line up later in a song. Uh and I wanted to sh- throw a shout out to, you know, like old school hip hop where having all these loops not line up together was why it sounded so cool, which right. is a different thing. But that is different from when you have two different kick samples that are now drifting. Now now it still sounds like one kick sample, but it just doesn't sound as good or it sounds out of phase or something like that. Yeah, I think the thing is to is to go in and probably when before mixing, print anything that's MIDI so that it doesn't move around on you and you know what you're working with. And you're either happy with the way it's kind of flaming or phasing, or you can fix it and know that it's kind of a permanent fix there. I dig it. Um, um, all right, so let's let's get into some more questions about some of your records. So um, tell us the story of writing and recording Sushi, and how did the Woohoo sample come about? Because that is such a killer, killer sound. Uh, it's such a hook. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it, I probably like just that exclamation sound is goes back to like the Beatles, like Paul McCartney, like Hey Jude, that sort of like uh, hoot and holler kind of thing. And then Michael Jackson kind of did that a whole bunch. Um, also, like Chicago band, like Jeff Tweedy, it's probably similar to his. Sometimes he'll do this. Uh, it's basically like an inward shriek. <laughs> like <laughs> I've sh- I've shown people I do. Like I can I can get it pretty loud. I'm not gonna do it now, but it's basically like an inward like breath that's uh, just coming out. And nice. And you just sort of, uh, well, I think what's funny to me too, is that, you know, here you are describing a process as being sheepish and, you know, um, indie and, um, yeah, just the sheepish thing. And, and yet like the hook in this thing is you going like, woo, yeah. you know, and it's like, it, maybe if you were Michael Jackson, it wouldn't have had the same <laughs> effect, but maybe because it was the, you know, the sound of you just started stepping out a little bit and doing that through the delay and the echo that it became a hook in a song. Yeah, I mean, and that's having the safety and space of making noises by yourself. Yeah. That, you know, nobody else heard all the other stupid sounds I made. <laughs> they just heard that nice. one stupid sound. <laughs> nice. Um, but yeah, creating that space to just try something different. And, um, you know, that is part of my personality. You know, I'm, I'm, I can run pretty hot or cold where it's just like, super laid back or overly rambunctious at times. And nice. that was one of those moments. And I've done that in a few different songs or literally use that same sample in a song that's like a totally different key and it somehow just works anyway. Yeah, I felt like I might have heard some hint of that and maybe it was You Always Make Me Smile or something, just like a um, a, uh, a nod to... Yeah, I mean, like that exclamation sample. stuff. Like, So in hip hop, especially modern stuff, you hear those just like vocalizations all the time. And they'll just be like a hype track of somebody else just being like, there's like this built-in fan of your song in the song, and it was just the same guy doing it. But that ties back to the just like, well, I'm fully believing in this thing that's happening right now, and I'm imagining other people are going to whoop that same sound at this moment. Um so yeah, I mean it's it's kind of that, and it's also the the Beatles thing where you would hear talking or other sounds that are just like it's just part of it. And it's just f- fun, you know. <laughs> what's what's the expression? You got to fake it to make it. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a little. It, it is just 
it's make believe. It start for me. It started as make believe. It's like, well, I don't have the band here. I couldn't get these other high school kids over here to play these like disco rock songs that I wanted. So like, here's my imaginary friends, like the guy playing bass or playing the drums. And man, it's fun to just dive into that and and, and let yourself go free and get it all out. You got to whoop it to scoop it, man. <laughs> All right, so um, let's talk about vocals. So how do you record vocals? How do you like to do it? I remember um, we were talking about our session here and on uh, the Anders Elstrom thing, and I think you went out to sing some background vocals. And I I feel like I remember putting out of SM58, and you were on the mic, and you're like, I can't hear it. And I was like, what the, what am I doing wrong in here? I've got to turn it all the way up. And, and it was like sort of a funny experience you know and then later i heard your record i'm like oh man that sounds awesome you know like i wish i had understood that uh, but do you have you gone through a real progression of how you record like to record your voice what do you want to share about that yeah so i mean that that started out and you know it used to just be singing through an sm58 or some sort of knockoff of it into that four track and list, recording with the headphones on and and learning early on, like, okay, like, I can get some tones that are cool, that are super quiet, almost like a whisper. Um, so, again, it's another example of, like, me finding my voice. If I had, if my first experience of recording had been gone to the studio and singing quietly and everybody in the room's like, what is going on? Like, this isn't a vocalist, which maybe is a legitimate statement, but, like, for me, it took having that safe space and uh, just experimenting to learn. Okay, like there's things I can do here with with this range. Um, it's maybe involved evolved. Like you always make me smile as me shouting at the top of my lungs. So um, that developed from going out and playing shows, touring with ten out of ten, and singing every night. Like. That stuff you learn, okay, well, I'm also able to do this other stuff. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about was, you know, gaining an understanding of what you do in the studio, connecting with what you do on a stage and how important is that stuff. And have you worked with other bands or artists who have expressed a concern about the connect from the studio to the stage and, and where you ever understood what they meant or maybe like struggled to understand what they were getting at? Yeah, uh, yeah. I think it's the, probably the number one challenge with like any artist that I hear or songwriters here in Nashville. It's that hey, I like a lot of different things. I like a lot of different styles. I made this kind of song, but then you go see them play, and it's um, maybe doesn't even sound anything like that. So I, I do think when I think of production for other bands, um, especially stuff if I'm not really like playing everything on it. I am trying to think of like, okay, well, best case scenario for most artists that you see that are like really having a great go of it, their record sounds like what they sound like when they just play with their group, whatever it is. So I find myself... Um, but when you start out, you don't have a group, right? Yeah. And so it, it I certainly didn't. It, it took a while to... Or you might not, yeah. Um, so yeah, that can be a journey to figure out like, well, what, what is the perfect marriage of what I can do in the studio here versus what I can do out in the real world? Yeah. I do think you, you learn a lot by playing live. You, you learn what songs people respond to. You, you learn different ways of expressing it. Um, I think 
this kind of first big project I did um, with my studio and working with another band, uh, was Daniel Ellsworth and the Great Lakes. It was kind of being thrown into the fire for me as an engineer. Um, they did their last record with Vance Powell, who like in town is just kind of known as like a complete badass for recording like live rock music. They did their next record with, with me because they wanted to get into some of the sort of weird programming or keyboard sound stuff that I do. But um, for me, it was my first time recording a live band playing and setting all that up. And it was a challenge, but it was really rewarding to then be stripped of the things like the click track and editing and just like all this stuff that I've relied on as like my production style and, and technique and just get back to like, okay, I'm just this fifth person here listening. What is happening to me as they play this song? Like listening to arrangements, listening to you know, did this section deliver on the way that like earlier it kind of promised it might. And so, man, it was a really fun experience to not be stuck in the computer, not be stuck in what I usually do, but just be listening and just give that feedback as like an extra band member, not necessarily playing, but just like more the Rick Rubin style of like, this is really cool what you're doing here, but like, let's really take it to the next level or like, really deliver don't peter off in this section or yeah. just like let's really follow through on it um and were you, you were engineering and recording this stuff as well yeah <laughs> all right well that's that's cool and it sounds great um but it does prompt me to ask you um a question about the difference between recording yourself and recording somebody else um, particularly vocals mm -hmm. when you're singing you hear what it sounds like coming back in the headphones did you notice a difference in how you could tell if you were getting the right vocal sound when somebody else is singing versus when you're recording yourself? I do think it's definitely easier to get better sounds when you're not recording yourself. I mean, I, that's just a real thing because your energy is just, if you're there by yourself, you're split between, is this the right lyric? Is this the right way to sing it? Is this the right sound? Am I standing in the right spot? Um, and so just, yeah, just by division of like attention, if you remove a couple of those things, yeah, I can hear if this guy's in tune, if that was a take, like it, that is easier for sure. Nice, man. All right. That's good. Good tip. Um, then as far as listening to somebody else's music and thinking about, you know, listening, saying, how do I feel and everything? It makes me think that you're also paying attention to arrangement. And so this question is to bridge or not to bridge? How important is a middle eight in songs and in pop music? There's, man, there's very few bridges that I feel like that I hear. I'm like, oh, that was super necessary. Like, I'd rather hear just or think of it as like, oh, here's another hook idea or here's another, um, just another dynamic moment. I'd rather have that. My least favorite part of the, any writing, writing session day is when the other person turns to me and is like, all right, well, now, now the bridge. I get, <laughs> again, it's that like chip on my shoulder of like the writing or like the schooled thing of like, yeah. well, then is this supposed to happen? And I, I just get this chip on my shoulder. Um, and it's always a relief when the other person is like, well, we don't have to. But it, 
I think it's cool to look for something. Is there a way to enhance this idea or add to it or pay off and take it to some level we haven't been? But I, man, I don't, I don't see it as any sort of necessity whatsoever. Yeah. It, for some reason, the image of going to the movies pops into my head. So we go to, we just were up in Maine, and there's this small movie theater, and they actually will show the first half of the movie doing intermission, you know, pr- oh. probably to make more popcorn sales, and then show a second half, and it makes me think about a movie. Um, with an intermission, like a bridge can feel like an intermission, like a break in the middle of a song, potentially. Um, whereas not having a bridge and maybe the way that you're looking at production is is a little bit more like the theme for a movie where it's the same theme, but it's treated differently in different sections of the, the film. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. like if you can have a repeated theme through the song, but just sort of keep approaching the sections differently, maybe it still gives you that same feeling. Um, what about dynamic in a song and a production? I mean, like I remember when I was first learning with Brad Jones, you know, he talked about a song going and going and going and how it needed a break somewhere. You know, what are some important things that the rock stars should be thinking about as far as, you know, if, if your song's up tempo and upbeat, do you, do you uh, like, what does it mean to take a break, but not sort of kill the groove? Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Um, I think I've over the years grown more conscious of like, well, what is the context for like where this is going to play? Like what will ideally the listener be doing while they hear this song? So like if it's not be like dance song, like the idea that you would need a break of it, like, well, if you were dancing at a wedding, would you need a break halfway through this like Justin Timberlake song? Like, no, like unless it was like uh, some sort of like gimmicky, like, uh, okay, now as the audience, you're supposed to like act in this way, like, uh, like everybody like clap twist your and hands. shout or something. Yeah, yeah, like it was that thing, but like rock lobster down, down, down. Yeah, like like an like an event happening within the song that is meant to be fun in this context of like where you would actually listen to it. So the idea that you would like just inherently need that just because it was doing this. I'm guilty of like, oh, well, I want everything to be like this build. So like, we're just going to start at nothing and climb like to a mountain by the end. It's like, I mean, probably most songs you hear that you love, it's just like one, two, three, four, go. And it just goes. And dynamically, there's some peaks usually within the vocal, but like a lot of times that track is just like there. Yeah. Um, And it's just kept that energy the whole time. Um, so if we want to talk about an instrument that you might hear in the, the more of a broken down stuff, uh, notice you use a lot of acoustic guitar on your recordings too. And you yeah. talked about recording, um, you know, you always make me smile with an acoustic and the vocals and stuff and layering. What have you learned about recording acoustic guitar? What are some great ways that, that the rock stars should know or try as far as recording acoustic guitars? Um, one trick that I like is I, I have um, an AE ribbon, stereo ribbon mic. And I've kind of done the trick. I've got this, what was a 12-string guitar, but um, three of the strings have broken off. And so now it's basically like a Nashville high strung with just like a little extra jangle on top. And it's real breezy and um, airy sounding. And so like 
I've done things where I'll just have that stereo mic and turn drastically to like one side of it and like, okay, here's going to be my right side guitar and do a take and then go back, double it sitting in the other opposite side of it. And it just gets this like super wide. Uh, that's cool. Face. Yeah. We were just talking about that recently on the podcast too, with John uh, Cunaberti, um, recording with stereo mics and just, you know, put the mic there and then do all your overdubs in different positions, like pre panning it. Yeah. It's think- like you end up with like 20 stereo tracks, but <laughs> hey, you know. I'm not scared of that, and it builds in a sound. You, you ain't scared of nothing, dude. I, don't, I mean, not when it comes to recording. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I have plenty of anxiety about other things. But. All right, well, so um, any other acoustic tricks that you really dig? Uh, any any mics that people are forgetting that they should try that they wouldn't have thought about? <sighs> Man, I, do, do you like the big, ex, super expensive tube mic? Is that so the first one you reach one that for? I have that I love is a Neumann M149, and it is huge and expensive. And I got it on eBay for like maybe fifty percent of what it goes for. And um, I do love that because it just sounds expensive. It sounds like that, like oh, I'm a, I'm a studio. Like nice. there's nothing lo-fi about that guy, but. Does it have the little gold, the jewel that lights up in it? Or is, maybe that's the M50. It does not have a jewel within it. Um, <laughs> but it's, I did a, like, I did a writing session with somebody out in LA and they had that. And usually when I write with people, it's for them to sing. This time I was singing, I got on it. My voice sounded like I hear it, what I, what I think it sounds like. Um, so I went searching and found like a one that was used on sale. I love that for drums. I love it for my vocals. I love it for guitar. So I will use that on a lot of stuff. But at the same time, I know in the back of my head, like it might take a little extra EQing or loving on the other side, but like I can pull out this $100 microphone or just use an SM57 and get a cool sound. Yeah, you're like, at the same time, I know I'm going to have to use a lot cheaper microphone if I want this to be a huge hit song. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's something too, like limitations and just like maybe it'll make me work harder on the other side to just like make that sound work or because it's already kind of maybe narrower it's just fitting in with everything else even better um yeah all right well so let me um ask one more question then we'll go into some of our outro questions but this one is um you know you're talking about building a song you talked about building it you know it's it just goes but you still want to build it um i notice and think of your production style as sometimes being very dense. Like there's a, not how I think of your, 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 you know, creative sense, but the, the sound quality of it. And, um, you know, there's, there seem to be a lot of cool uses of distortion and stuff like that. Um, and so I wondered if you're, you know, does, does a dense production sound like that, this big full sound, does that necessarily mean a lot of overdubs or does that mean like, you know, is it, simple overdubs that are treated in cool ways. Maybe you can talk a little bit about filling out the space in your production and knowing that it's the full sound you were looking for. Yeah, I would say so earlier work is just like layer upon layer of just like, where can I sneak some sort of like ear candy thing in there? Um, so like something like the Real Blasty record is just, it's there's 20 too many layers on everything. And it was just like, oh, this is fun. This is cool. I can sneak one more little thing in here. And so for me, because I know it all so well, like 
removed, I can listen back and be like, oh yeah, that thing or that little sound. And maybe if you put your headphones on, there's like little things that you would catch that hopefully you thought were cool. Um, you know, as I've maybe matured as a producer, it's less about jamming everything into a space. Yeah, different kind of jam band you turned out to be. Well, right? you, you learn that, okay, so musicians, and I talk about this with Dan, Daniel a lot, if you're a musician or a producer, like, it's like that Amadeus movie. It's like when he he plays the symphony and then, like, the king's like, you know, there's only so many notes you can hear in an evening. If you're a musician, like, it's all coming at you and you can decipher it all and you're like, cool, 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 give me more, more, more. Maybe the average listener is like, this is all a distraction from the singer. <laughs> like, I yeah. just want to hear what he's saying. Interesting. So yeah. I, I, I'm trying to mature, grow into like, okay, let's. It's like the difference between having a conversation and listening to, like, I'm listening to what you're saying in here versus if we were in a crowded, loud bar and I'm trying to like, you know, pick out what you're saying amongst all this other stuff. Yeah. I think when when I've listened to other mixers, much better mixers, um, they're they're talking about focal points. They're talking about like, man, there's two or three things that you can really just throw at your listeners that they're gonna actually absorb at any time. So um yeah, maybe try to dial some of that back or realize that like it could rather than having these 10 things happening all at this one moment, it could build like this one thing or these two things happen and then these other three things and get variation and interest that way. Um, yeah, you mentioned um, a classical orchestra. We were talking about that or Amadeus. And I could totally see how, you know, an orchestra that was just constantly barraging you with everything all at once would just be well, too it might much be exhausting. Or you wouldn't know what to listen to. Yeah, right? that, that might, yeah, exhaust your listener or audience. And sometimes it's fun to just, do it anyway. This is the wall. This is yeah. the wall of sound. And sometimes that sounds great. Um, but yeah, you got to find that balance. And that's probably the the challenge of knowing as a producer, when is this done? It's just, what is that sweet spot? We've put enough on Ooh. here that's interesting. That was a question I meant to ask you. What are some good tips for ending a song? Ending a song. How do you, you know, you, you've built this thing up in a computer it's a little different than playing it with the band where everybody's like, dun, 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 you know. How do you end a song when you're, when you're very computer with your music? Um, this last EP I did, I, to solve that problem, because it, it is, sometimes you'll just like build loops and realize you, you don't have like a natural resolution of this, the same you would. And in that instance, when you're just building up, it's it's as simple as like literally playing those chords that hang out at the end. Um, my solution to this last EP that I did for myself was to just really do complete takes of basic tracks, like start at the beginning and play this whole song that I've written and get a performance and a moment out of that. Do it again with all of those rather than trying to just piece sections together. Um, I found that, and maybe that was like a result of tracking this live band where it was completely full takes. If they messed up in the last moment, we just did the song again. We didn't cut it together. Um, but the reward of that was the ebb and the flow and this little like kind of give and take and pull of the rhythm. And 
Um, that made me, when I was recording my stuff, want to just do full takes of guitars and yeah. the live instrument stuff. Even if the drums were programmed, just like everything I'm doing over that, have it be a pass through the entire song. Um, when it comes to the final chorus of a song, the super chorus and stuff like that, and then the last closing, whatever it is, do you find that you have a tendency to make that a little too short and then want to make it longer later <laughs> or make it too long and then want to make it shorter later? I get maybe stuck in the like repetition thing. Like the repetition thing is probably when if you're building with loops or looping sections, I think it, I think you figure out how long something should be when you just sit and you play it and you perform it. There's just like this internal clock that at some point you get this feeling like, oh, it should have ended here or repeating that line this many times was too many. So that's where it helps to actually step aside and play it out loud or play it with people. Just sitting on your screen, sometimes that's hard to feel out. Yeah. Do you have a process of turning off your screen and like looking away when you listen and that kind of stuff? Or I don't. I've seen people do it and I, I get why that's helpful. Um, I think I tend to just like close my eyes and just look down. Yeah, I'm more know? likely to look away if I'm, if I'm feeling like that needs to happen. I, I'm so visual with that stuff. I love keeping track of like the timeline. Like I love yeah, that. It's right. I mean, it's, it is a safety net in the sense of like, okay, if I heard something or I felt that moment, I know where to go find it and address it. Do so. you ever feel like the ultimate final deliverable for your music would be to just deliver an actual like Pro Tools session to the, <laughs> to the consumer and they just, they play it on their screen to listen to the music? That would be kind of cool. I had this idea and I don't know how it would, how you would ever deliver it, but, um, cause there's that thing where you just have different versions or different mixes and, It'd be cool to, uh, every time you press play to listen to this album, you got like a variation of it. So that it just always kind of felt a little new. I felt like that last Daft Punk record kind of, I think it was just tricking me. But I felt like every time I listened to it, I didn't recognize it. Like it felt familiar, but like somehow different than the, the time before. And I think it's just because so much was going on. But... I think I don't know what the mechanism to deliver that would be, but it would just be cool to like, okay, every time your listener presses play, like it's a slightly different mix or slightly different variation, yeah. just so that like, because people you figure can, it out. You just deliver like twenty mixes, and then they you don't they never know which one they're going to listen to when they press play. Um, All right, well, so let me ask you some of these usual outro questions too. Uh, I feel like you've already talking about this, but I'll ask you again. When you started out, at, what do you feel like was holding you back? Uh, just finding friends with good taste in music. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, yeah, I mean, just, just I was so eager. Like, I was in love with recording. And it's, I didn't want to go to school. Like, I would skip school. My favorite thing in the world was, like, I'm sick today, air quotes. I don't feel well, and I'm playing hooky, and I'm recording. Like, wasn't Ferris Bueller from Chicago too? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He's a little older than me, but yeah, definitely. Um, but I mean, that was just like freedom. It was just like, thank you. Um, I didn't have, I didn't know friends that were like at that level of of, of of obsessed. But that that led me to learning these other ways, and ultimately the way I've learned to produce. 
is learn how to run a drum machine, learn how to program keyboards or change sounds, like make this imaginary band. So um, yeah, it helped me back, but then ultimately has informed the way that I do things. Um, was it Captain Beefheart and his imaginary band? I'm trying to think if that was. If not, it should be Kyle Andrews and his imaginary <laughs> band. Um, all right, so now how about, you've already shared a bunch already, but give the rock stars a recording tip hack or secret sauce another one, something they could use on their very next session today? Um, something for recording vocals, like even if I'm not going to end up wanting to use like a doubled or tripled vocal sound, to get the take, I will sing to them. So like I'll do one or two takes that I basically are like warm-ups. I'll pan them hard. And then, then you sing your song. It's like, it's that same idea of like the hype man. You've kind of got these voices that are there with you to help you carry that melody. And um, it also it gets you out of your head and closer to the way when you just play a show, there's not tons of thought. You're just doing it. So I like that trick for myself and for other people. Like I find when I do that with other singers, like even great singers, like that first one's always just like eh, a little bit like hesitant. Second one gets kind of better. But like if you just like put them both up, even if you don't use those, have them sing to that. Like that third one's usually oh, interesting. By nature so of like, being warmed up, but yeah. also just like there's that buffer and forgiveness that gets you out of your head a little bit. Um, so it's yeah. like you're you're giving the singer, whether it's yourself or another singer you're working with, a couple of best friends to yeah. sing along to on <laughs> totally. the next version of it. It's like if you all love the song and you're sitting around in the room, and we press play and we're all singing the lyrics together. Man, I don't know if. You, if you know Tom Mitchell, but he's somebody that I met through Lex and um, at that grocery store that I used to work at, he uh, he was talking about having somebody record background vocals, and he's like, man, I don't want somebody to come sing on it. Like, I want them to just be singing like they're listening to it while they're in the kitchen doing the dishes, just singing along, and it's on the radio in the other room. Like, I want that sort of level of just ease and non-performance. Stuff like, I relate to that very much. Like, I, I want to get to something that's not American Idol. Yeah. Just me too. a real person. And it's amazing when you record yourself enough times, you begin to realize just how many different versions of something you have in you. You know, I think about all the different instruments we record, and I'm I'm learning more and more that the voice is the most dynamic, the most expressive, the most flexible, the most capable of doing, you know, like a massive range of different stuff. And no wonder it's hard to like record the same song on two different days and have them feel like, it, you know, they're both the same recording. Yeah, I mean, it's rare, like people that have the ability and the talent, and I do think it's just kind of like a rare gift to just have that level of consistency. I mean, I've I've seen people play around town that are just like, oh, okay. Like, I remember seeing Aaron McCarley sing with a friend and just being like, oh, so your voice just sounds like an album when you sing into an SM57. Like, yeah, it just has the sheen and the gloss and the air, like, and tuning. All of that's just built into you. That must be nice. <laughs> like, yeah, that's cool. I don't have that, but that leads me to search for what can I do? What, what, what are the different ways I can find something interesting? I had the honor to record Cheryl Crow recently oh, wow. at, at the Bonnaroo Haybale studio. And same thing, like 
No matter how hard I tried to screw that session up, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, I didn't, but you know, I can't help feeling that way. Um, it was incredible at how well she was able to sing and just deliver her voice sounding the right way. And it's going to sound like song, that everywhere right song, she you know? goes. Yeah. There's a, I mean, there's so a reason cool. that people like, people like that that get to the top of the world or the industry is because they have that ability to, with that consistency. It's because she was singing with Michael Jackson years ago, right? right yeah, and yeah. Because she learned all about the whoop back <laughs> then. All right. So um, how about sharing with the rock stars? Are there a favorite hardware tool or some particular thing you're just excited about that you want to let them know about? Um, hardware, you know, just because it was the first time I stepped out of the box, out of the laptop, that 6176 will just always be a favorite. So it's like... The, That's the Universal Audio yeah, Tube Mic Pre? Yeah, it's Tube Mic Pre with... Um, Basically, like low and high shelving, like EQ. And then on the other side, it's 1176. So if it's like vocals, it can be your chain. And it's as far as getting like the opposite of like that digital sterile sound that used to be a bigger deal or concern. To me, it was just like a way of like, okay, like, well, definitely not that anymore. It's just like tube and rich. And um, I would definitely abuse it and distort it and just use it for all it had in there. The other side of it, like the 1176, you could just take it easy or just crush. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so like I would run bass through that, basically just like an idiot, like everything up to 10 into the inbox, everything up to 10. And it's just like, this sounds like a, a train just coming at you, <laughs> a monster. I love it. And I would get like, side chain that like so the sound on sushi in the verse is that it's exploding through that box into the inbox exploding it and then side chaining it against the program kick in that song so it's just rolling and ducking out of the way when it when it needs to but then when it's there it's just massive um well let's keep talking about that for just a sec i, I forgot to make that one of my questions can you explain to the rock stars sort of what the side chain thing is and how often and where do you find it useful? Um, it can be, to me, like in any sort of like synth pop or electro stuff, you can literally do this on anything and have it be useful and fun. Um, it's, maybe, maybe just give us a just, basic explanation of what it is. Yeah, too. so like um, in the instance with the sushi bass, so I've got this bass sound and then that's huge i mean it's just like full range lot, subs everything and then i also have a kick drum that i is huge and full range and i want everything um just an easy way to make them sort of behave and interact is um you kind of route out a send from the kick drum into a compressor and it'll, it'll key that so every time that kick drum hits it's going to trigger compression on the other instrument so every time my kick drum hits in sushi, that giant bass sound, where they would together just be too much, it ducks out of the way for just, for however long you set it, but it's really just an instant, just long enough for you to hear just the kick. Yeah. Um, it seems like in EDM now, it's, oh, it's become a whole, you know, I mean, it doesn't seem like it's obviously yeah. become a whole means of expression, but... I still find my brain trying to wrap around like, well, which, what thing is being ducked in this mix? Right. You know, I think sometimes what we're hearing isn't something being ducked anyway. It's actually automation written onto a sound. But what are some other sounds that you might um, do that trick to 
in music that you make where you, you're like, this could be really cool? So you can do that super extreme version of that and have it'll end up being more of the EDM sound if you put it on like synths and kind of get that upbeat like swell sound. Yeah, so that you, you're putting it on instruments that don't necessarily have a lot of low end. So it's not necessarily about fighting for the low end anymore. Yeah, then it just becomes about creating rhythm. So like the main keyboard in Sushi, which is this sort of Nintendo Atari 8-bit that, 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 that kind of thing. Yeah, that's that's. Um, YouTube, please don't shut down this video <laughs> just because I sang that one line. The the piece underneath it. So there's the top melody doing that line. The the pad that's pulsing underneath that is pulsing, um, similarly as the as the side chaining effect. It's running from not just the kick but also the claps, and I think the hi hat. So it's chopping going on and off my my synth is going on and off based off of those other programs and filling that space and that's all done with sidechain stuff too yeah it's within reason there's ways they kind of have their fake uh cartoon cv thing that you can connect one piece cv of stands for control voltage that's like old school hook and synth sound before <laughs> right. midi right yeah so getting the pulses out of what i've programmed into the drum machine saying a gate to the synth being like be on here and off here and basically you just kind of hold hold those chords and it's gonna auto react to this other program that's a fun way like if you're kind of stuck or just bored of your acoustic guitar strumming to just get something that's um you know you influence it and you controlled it by doing that program but like the sound you're gonna get out of it is just like a surprise. Is that one of the places where you still feel like reason kind of it dominates as far as a, what it's useful for as a DAW where because you can flip the gear around and actually patch control voltages into oscillators and all that kind of stuff, it's very easy to construct sounds where it doesn't feel like you're having to open the manual to you know understand how this is going to be done in some other DAW? Yeah, that's where I love like the visual aspects of it and you know, it's bright and colorful and it, it just feels like you're playing a video game. And what happens if I plug this in to this thing? There's been like a super big revival of that sort of boutique synth gear where you can do that stuff. Um, you know, if you see a photo like Trent Reznor or Depeche Mode working in their studio, there's walls of it. But that stuff, you know, to get all that in real life is like hundreds of thousands of dollars just to be able to mess with it real quick and reason, which is like a couple hundred bucks or whatever. Like that's kind of more. Okay. Speed. Sorry. I know we're going on tangents <laughs> here, but um, speaking of mess with it, yeah. um, what are some, are there some external knobs and things like that in the studio that you've enjoyed having around to make it easier to mess with things that live inside the computer? I mean, is that, is that even a struggle or are you just used to it now with the mouse? I'm like a mouse guy. I'm like the Mac mouse guy. There's absolutely a thing to, I do have some external synth stuff. Like I have a, a Dave Smith um, Prophet 6. And there is, there is, it's a real thing, you know, as we're walking through the studio and looking at all the gear, it's a real thing to, to look at all these controls and just want to see what they do and get your hands on it and play with it. So um, that is a, another experience that I think is like totally vital, vital, um, I don't necessarily try to recreate that with the synth stuff. I just ex accept that it's um, 
make believe within the computer. So yeah. I don't try to recreate that with like a controller because those you you oftentimes have to just spend a lot of time program, programming them. And so you've lost that instantaneousness that you were trying to right. capture anyway. Right, right. And also if you're losing the vibe, you just have another mocha, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. So um, we'll skip forward. That kind of answered the, some of the software questions. Unless there was, was there anything else software that you wanted to uh, hit the rock Man, I saw to? this thing on Instagram that Greg Wells posted called um, Golf Loss, which is- Called Golf Loss? What is uh, it? <laughs> golf Loss. So, uh, it's Icelandic for waterfall. Oh, okay. And it is, um, it's a, basically an auto EQ that you could put on your mix bus or different instruments. But it's it's updating against basically what it, it's they've decided is like this ideal human ear curve, and it's updating up to like a hundred times per second. And it if you just put it on like a little sprinkle of it, you just get a little bit of magic. It sounds like a waterfall. It's like everything's mocha. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's really cool. You can totally go too far with it like really quickly, but. I've tried to, I've done the thing of like looking at what it's doing and then just putting on like a fab filter and doing the same thing. And because it's, it's auto adjusting so quickly, like you just never could recreate that effect with a regular EQ. Okay, cool. That's a great tip. I haven't heard about that one yet. Check it out. Uh, we'll check it out. Rockstar's Greg Wells Golf Floss. I don't think I'm pronouncing <laughs> it right, but um, I'm sure it'll be easy to find. And then um, let's jump to a question about the business. Um, you know, we didn't get to talk about your experience with Terrorbird yet, but you really had some great things to say about working with them. And so I thought maybe that would be the question about, you know, what what advice would you like to share with the rock stars about the business side of doing, doing this? Uh, yeah. So what I've been thinking about this and I've, I've always thought, you know, basically finding great business partners um, I think maybe even especially in the music business, it's about as easy as finding true love in dating, but equally as important, um, like these people are the key to your entire career. They have to love what you're doing. They have to be able to stand you. <laughs> like they have to understand psychologically what you're about. There has to be a chemistry, um, and at the heart of all of that, um, same with relationships, you, you're not going to find that person unless you know who you are and what you're about. So like, you know, knowing that ahead of time as you're, when you're starting out, knowing like, I got to figure out what I'm good at. I got to figure out what I want to do with that. Maybe being patient and not just jumping at the first situation that appears. Yeah. You talked about that, um, that you sort of, you had what looked like some potential offers from sort of the major label and publishing companies early on, but you really wanted to kind of go the indie route yourself. Yeah, well, there was a sense of like, okay, well, this is cool and it, it feels good to maybe get that offer, but um, there's a chance, and I'd seen it with other friends, like there's a chance your record could kind of just um, get put on the back burner for infinity and that was terrifying to me because i wanted to put out a lot of music so the idea that like oh i might not get to put out this album for three years or maybe never like that yeah. was just scary. that happened to us so the, the band i was working with out of chicago was called the trixo and um we got signed to hollywood records and we went and spent 
a year, which was ironically a little amount of time compared to what we did later, but we spent a, a full year nonstop, you know, putting this thing together and getting the record done. And they were in the middle of the artwork when the label was just like, nah, we're done. They just dropped the band and shelved the record oh. and, and it was never released. And, you know, we had gone and mixed the stuff with Tom Lord Algae down in Miami and had it mastered wow. by Brian Gardner out in LA. And it was some great stuff, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm glad you didn't shelve all Man, your records. That's, I mean, that's just like, it's so, that's such a sad story. And I've, I've heard it from a lot of people and um, I kind of learned this th or just developed this attitude of like, okay, well, whatever the deal was, it would have to be so much money that I, if, if they were like, hey, you don't get to make music anymore, I'm somehow okay with that. And to me, that number is more money than anybody would have ever actually pay me. So like, yeah. maybe I'm not going to do that. Yeah, nice. All right. Um, so tell us a little bit about, you want to say anything more about Terrorbird? Um, Terrorbird's great. Uh, I'm wearing their shirt. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they are very artist friendly, um, first and foremost. So they've never asked me to do anything stupid or anything that I wouldn't want to do. There's no... Um, Hey, why don't you record a, a? There's just no pressure externally to do something that I wouldn't just naturally do. And then on the other side, I have confidence in them that because it's, it is need driven from top down. If I have a song in my catalog, whether it's um, well known or not, they know it. And if they've been asked for anything like it, it'll get pitched. And at the same time, they're not going to they're not going to send something that I have new just because it's new for a request that has nothing to do with it. So like they've built trust with people they work with. There's just trust all along. Yeah. And so Terrorbird is a publishing company. Uh, they do publishing. It's not traditional like co-pub. It's, it's more admin, um, but they do licensing and they also do PR, like college radio stuff and um press stuff as well. I get a lot of questions from the rock stars. Um, well, not a lot, but occasionally get questions about, you know, I'm, I'm writing and I'm recording songs. What's the first thing I'm supposed to do as far as copyright or publishing? What advice would you share with the rock stars regarding that? Uh, I mean, the, as far as like publishing, I, I'm, I've always been a big believer in, in, I've always owned my publishing. I think that's, you're basically betting on yourself to just hang on to that. Um, but what's the first move when you've got this new song, you're releasing a record. I mean, do you send a copy of it to library of Congress with a $30 check and, and then now it's registered or is, is that like too in the weeds? I've, I've, that's not something I've, I've done. Um, you, at the very least, I mean, the biggest copyright thing is is if you put it out and it's there and it's in the world and people are hearing, like, um, that's that's proof that you and made it. it. And, and I guess if you're working with good admin, they're taking care of all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, anyway. you you want to have a relationship with um, the PROs like BMI or ASCAP or CSAC. Like, you want to you want to have a good relationship there and make sure all that stuff is filed. Um, is that something where when you were starting out and doing your own releases, you just went to the offices or went to the website and registered, and then you would upload all your song data and things like that? Or yeah, I think when I was new to town, I I somehow got a meeting with somebody at BMI and was like, okay, I want you know I'm going to be doing this. I want to get set up, 
it's still that's still a little bit nebulous to me. Like I don't fully understand um, that whole world or that process, but it's definitely a part of it. You you want to make contact with those people because they'll be potentially a representative, regardless of if you're complete completely independent or if you sign a publishing deal or if you sign with a label. Like those people can still be a part of that path the whole way through. Right. So. Right. Um, hopefully money coming from the PROs and the publishing opportunities into your bank account is something that doesn't feel nebulous anymore. <laughs> it feels like it actually, you're like, oh yeah, that is the, the dots are connected. Yeah. I mean, you got to keep track of that stuff for sure. Um, I'm not, I'm definitely not like a businessman. Yeah. You were saying when we started this that you, you, um, and I, you were saying that the, the business is not the thing where, where you feel like that's your big strength. But, you know, I was also saying, I think that the, uh, you know, the, the fact that you allow yourself a world where you get to focus on the creative and making the music and doing all that, and you can trust that you can build good relationships with people to take care of other things. I think that's wise. Yeah. And that, that trusting is huge. And just, um, I think that that's key is knowing yourself and finding people that you trust and they can trust you and whether it's feedback creatively or what kind of moves to make um, as far as putting music out, like that's just huge. Yeah. Um, so the next question too, the one about organizational advice. Um, I, I know you talked about that, not necessarily being a, the yeah. thing that you had a whole lot to say, but you did have a funny story about having to reuse your hard drive space a long time ago. Do you want to share that one? <laughs> yeah. So my first record, Amos in Ohio, I recorded it. And then, man, because I, I literally had no idea what I was doing. Um, I had recorded it. It was all on a hard drive. In my mind, like, that was like, okay, well, I burned some CD-ROMs and handed them out to, like, my friends. Okay, I'm going to start making some more music. And, you know, hard drives were still maybe, like, 250 or 300 bucks for, like, 30 gigs or something. It, it wasn't a great deal. So... <sighs> I don't know, just sort of maniacally deleted it all to make space and make more music. And then later, Badman was like, hey, we want to put that album out. And I was like, awesome, great. Here's the CD. And they're like, what do you think about like remixing some stuff and remastering it? And I'm just like, that would have been, that would be cool, but it doesn't exist. <laughs> um, I think that's less a problem. Like storage is much cheaper now. So it's like less yeah. an issue. But it does speak to um, sort of, you know, I didn't know well enough to like value the work I was doing when I was young. And these are my closer to my first ideas. And it's that same thing of just like that, that might end up being one of my more beloved pieces of work because of its sort of innocence and um, just homespun quality. So, you know, at the time I, if I could go back, I'd be like, you know, hang on to this stuff. It could end up being really important. Yeah. So. I don't know if I could go back and find all the earliest records I did either. Right. At this point, it'd be hard to do. <laughs> um, all right, let's, let's jump to the last question. And this one's hypothetical, but we're going to take the way back studio machine and you're going to go back and find young Kyle, you know, um, blending smoothies at the health food store or wherever, whatever you're doing, you know, clipping wheatgrass and oh, pressing man. it into little, into shots for people. Um, and you're going to give yourself some advice and you say, young Kyle, I've come to give you this 
one bit of advice. Here's the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the recording studio yourself one day. What, what advice would you go back and give yourself? Man, it's everything we touched on. It's that kishibashi quote of just first you got to do it and then it's done. I, I learned that really quickly in putting out the Amos and Ohio record. Just make a step. There's not going to be this perfection idea. Not everyone's going to like it. A lot of people will tell you they don't like it. But in just making that step, it, it's going to get you somewhere else, and then you'll try something else. And it stepping outside of yourself, you know, you can't be afraid to do that. Um, I think back then, if I had known, like, seen how it all went, I, I maybe would have made all those steps quicker or just, like, charged at them with more, like, fearlessness. Do you feel like you're charging at stuff fearlessly these days? <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting. Like, it, it changes when it's some when music, the thing that you have loved your whole life, or the hobby, becomes like, okay, well, this is how I need to pay my mortgage. I've definitely gone through phases of like that's a different sort of pressure, and I'm, I think I'm coming out of that and trying to reconnect with that original spirit even more. Of just, it won't work. None of this will be good unless I get to that space, that more Zen space where all those thoughts aren't in my head. I'm not thinking about licensing. I'm not thinking about um, how well I'm able to sing. I'm just doing what I've always done is, is make music. So, so awesome. Yeah. Well, Kyle, dude, thank you so much for being on Recording Studio Rockstars with yeah. us. It's been an absolute pleasure. We've been talking for uh, almost 140 minutes now. Nice. This is a real power episode. So, Rockstars, thank you so much for listening. I love your music. I love hearing all these things that you've shared with us about how you make the, make it. Um, let the Rockstars know how they can go find you, find your music. How do they find you online? And uh, what if they need you to, to write a song or produce their next hit record? Yeah, you can hit me up. Um, find my stuff at kyleandrews.com. You know, there's links to Bandcamp where you can hear all my music. You can search it on Spotify. Um, and there's a spot on that website, um, kyleandrews.com, to hit me up if you want to make some music together. Cool. And Rockstar, as a reminder, once again, you can find links to this stuff in the show notes. I put together a collection of YouTube videos, and the playlist is right there. Just click through on your mobile device or go to rsrockstars.com and then just search for Kyle Andrews, and it'll take you right to the blog post. And um, thanks for listening. Dude, we'll see you around the studio, man. I can't wait to, uh, I don't know what we're going to record next, but I feel it. It's coming. Let's Something. It. <laughs> Cheers, man. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RS Rockstars to 33444. Again, that's RS Rockstars to 33444, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.